Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, the editor-in-chief of the Cinematropolis, Caleb Masters, and this month, we will celebrate our one-year anniversary of this podcast by talking about all things spooky in this year's horror movie Halloween season. In today's episode, we'll kick things off by reviewing the highly anticipated return of Michael Myers to the big screen, the 2018 film Halloween. I never felt as though what was happening was predictable. I, I never found myself going, well, I know exactly what's going to happen next. In fact, there were several times where I was really not sure. I was like, is this you know person going to survive? Later, Alexandra Bohannon will take us through some of the scariest film scores in the horror movie genre history. There is like a lot of really strong visceral reaction to this film. And I think some of this score done by a prog rock artist in 1973 ends up making it to being on one of the best known horror movies of all time, their soundtrack. And to wrap up the show, Jacob and Zachary Burns will join us for part two of our audio diary of the Making of Shifter series to talk about location scouting and preparing to take their film into production. We need four weeks to make this movie to shoot it. And so what we decided to do was split that into two two-week phases. It's all coming at you next. And welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we will be celebrating the most wonderful time of the year. Forget Christmas. It's fun. It's cute. It's sweet. It's going to have a month and a half, but not before Halloween, the greatest holiday season there is. And joining us for this spooktacular review is my co-host of this little uh, review and analysis segment, uh, Laron Chapman. Welcome back, sir. Hey, hey, hey. We haven't, we haven't had a chance to review a movie together lately. It's been a while, but we're here for a lot of nostalgia. Oh, so, so much nostalgia. So this is the perfect one to come back for. Oh, my goodness. And you've got, you've got cool stories to tell us. But before we get to the cool stories, we have to introduce the third voice at our table. We are also joined by one of our staff contributors uh, and also another member of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle with me, Mr. Christopher Schultz. Christopher, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Thank you for having me once again. If you haven't read Christopher's work on thecinematropolis.com, he is definitely our one of our horror aficionados. We all love horror, but he has written some terrific essays. He wrote one on Halloween H2 uh, earlier this month. He wrote a, a fantastic piece on the... It was a very abbreviated history on uh, anthology films, but I thought it was great. Summed it up really well. And, very insightful um, work, yeah. I think, uh, I think you've got one last uh, Halloween piece coming out for us uh, before, might, before might, the holiday. Might have one more, uh, one more good scare before the holiday <laughs> season is over. So, Well, excellent. I'm really excited to have both of you gentlemen here to talk about Halloween. Yes, and this is a, a, a film we I think we've all been looking forward to for quite some time. So yeah, we didn't even know we needed it, but we definitely needed it. Yeah. Uh, now, before we jump into our review of uh, Halloween, that is Halloween 2018, not to be confused with Halloween 1978. 
Uh, I do want to remind you, you can find all of these essays we're talking about on the cinematropolis.com. Uh, if you want a deep dive written analysis of the film, you can check the website out there. And of course you can find us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at the cinematropolis on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis. Without further ado, let's go ahead and step right into our review of Halloween. That he would escape. Who the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. The bus crashed. Michael Myers escaped. He'll return to Haddonfield, his home. And that was from the trailer of Halloween. 2018. Before we jump into the, the review specific, I do want to talk a little bit about how it's actually been quite a while since we've had a proper Halloween movie. Uh, this is the first one we've seen since Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 in 2009. So that uh, that's nine years. Yeah. Um, boy, and what a nine years it's been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, let me say that horror has changed quite a bit. The synopsis for Halloween reads... Laurie Strode comes to her final confrontation with Michael Myers, the masked figure who has haunted her since she narrowly escaped his killing spree on Halloween night four decades ago. One thing we should note about this film is that it is uh, erases everything that happens after the original 1978 Halloween. Yes. So we, we saw a similar occurrence happen with Halloween H2O, which came out in 1998, 20 years ago, where they pretended like Halloween... One and two were the only films that mattered in the canon. They ignored Halloween three, four, five, and the return of Michael Myers. Or sorry, the curse of Michael Myers. Yes. And we got Halloween two. This film does it again, except for Halloween two is not even canon. It is just a sequel to the original film. And apparently that was all it took to get Jamie Lee Curtis back on board as the lead heroine. Gentlemen, we all love Halloween. Yes. We all have a lot invested in this long-running franchise, so I want to get your take. What did you think about them erasing all of the previous history with the series? Initially, when I heard that, I was like, well, of course, first you're excited that they're making one. You're like, okay, cool, and Jamie's back. But wait a minute, this doesn't make sense, you know, because there's so many questions you have. But I, I think once, once now that I've seen it and also leading up to it, you realize that it's kind of the only way, cutting those appendages of the other narratives, that it could have worked. And it made it a little bit more intriguing because then you don't have to spend all this time with exposition because then I feel like we would have spent a good solid 30 minutes of them just talking about what clearly doesn't make sense about the story and then then somehow you know getting on the narrative that they wanted to tell. So I think it, I think it was a smart, um, efficient way of getting back to the basics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I personally have never been much of a fan of the um, reveal that, that Lori is Michael's sister. I don't, I don't mind it. I don't hate it or anything like that. But it to me, it's like any explanation you can give for this character's motivation, this, this killer. You know, the, the entire uh, intent of the original film is that, you know, he's, he is pure evil. Um, he can't really be stopped. Um, and there's, he has, you know, the blank white face. He, he has no motivation. There's no reason behind what he does. And that's ultimately more terrifying than he likes to kill his sisters. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was, I was actually really excited when I heard that because I'd always wanted to see a Halloween sequel in which that plot reveal was ignored. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, and then, you know, the whole Cult of Thorn thing, you can forget about that too. The Cult of Thorn thing, come on, man. I thought we were going to bring it back. I thought this was the sequel that was going to bring us back to that. So I was one of those kids who was very invested in all the still mythology and tried to justify it in my head for years and years and years. But I've come to the conclusion recently that as much as I like some of the sequels, I particularly like Halloween 4. Yeah. I like Halloween H2O. I like aspects of the Rob Zombie films. I don't think they're very good, but I think aspects of them are really fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I've come to the conclusion that most of these sequels, other than Halloween 3, uh, are not very good. I, I just generally, I mean, it's not that they're yeah. bad, but like yeah. they are, they're all trying really desperately to recreate the, the masterpiece of the original. And I don't think any of them truly succeed, um, no. even though I think some of them are very enjoyable. Yeah. So for me, it's like looking back at that, I don't think there's anything particularly sacred about this entire huge mythology they've built up. And it's, no. it's kind of nice that this is a 40 year old franchise. So it's nice that after 40 years, they can say, you know what, actually, let's just get back to the root. Because that, well, let's get back to what worked best. And while I do think having Lori, the reveal of Lori Strode does kind of add, uh, add an element that's interesting uh, in Halloween 2, I don't think it's necessary to, to capture uh, a great film. The first Halloween existed for like five or six years before we got Halloween 2. So um, I think it's great that we just ditched all the extra baggage and made a sequel. And by doing that, they actually, by removing the, the, the motive for Michael Myers, which even as mysterious and daunting and creepy as he was, the motive was for him was to kill his other sister, remove, kill all members of his family or whatever. Now he has no motive. He's just a guy who shows up and kills people. He's the boogeyman. Yeah. And I think they did a pre- I think it's a pretty bold idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Another question you have to ask yourself is, okay, we're getting into the Halloween sequel. They're ignoring all this mythology. But David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, the, the people who wrote Your Highness, what's what's going on here? So, I, like, what I, do I you had, guys think? I had a lot of pause um, with that uh, initially because, I mean, I'm not even really a huge fan of Danny McBride in general. Um, but, I mean, say what you will, as a writer, you know, um, it just felt like a weird. I was like, are they going to make this into like a dopey kind of you know scary movie franchise type of? you know, a treatment to it, if it is going to have too much lightness about it. Um, But I think we learned pretty quickly, you know, that he was a beloved fan of the franchise too. So they wanted to give it a real, you know, uh, honest treatment. So I think they succeeded. So I think my initial hesitation was I was proven wrong. So, yeah, I maintained um, that hesitation, you know, up until I, I saw the film Um, just simply because, you know, I don't want to get my hopes too up uh, too high. Um, but yeah, it, it was a similar thing. I, I kept reminding myself, you know, Jordan Peele made Get Out and that was a really great effective horror film. Um, and these guys seemed really genuine in their desire to make a really good, not, not just a really good Halloween film, but a really good horror film right. as well, that they had reached a point in career, their career where they were ready for something like that. So, so I, I kept that hesitation, but as much as I read in the comments that I saw, I, I go, okay, I'm, I'm still... I'm still cautious here, but but I like what you're saying, and I like where you're going. And and plus, we did get John Carpenter back in the fold as well. I, I think finally. I, that was a big that was a big one when he got listed as an executative producer. Like mm-hmm. he was on board with the idea, and yeah. uh, also back as a film composer. Yeah, an incredible score. Yeah, and he was very supportive of of David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's idea. You know, he said yeah. these guys really get it. Um, so you know, again, hesitation. I mean, John Carpenter's not the same guy he was back in 1978, obviously. Um, but but. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think they, they really delivered, um, even if they're 
you know, not not the immediate names you might come to you know, you might think of when it comes to a Halloween film. So I think I think it's really cool that they step in though. These guys you wouldn't expect. They generally are known more for comedy. Yeah. Stepping into doing a horror film, but here's something I've learned about comedians, and not I'm not saying comedians can do anything, but they are very. They really do want to please people. They want to make people happy. I mean, they, the whole their whole goal as a comedian is to make people laugh. Right. So, like they, in a certain in a, in a different way than I think a lot of writers do, comedians often get the audience because they know what mm-hmm. makes them tick, what's going to make them laugh. If you can get someone to laugh, yeah. you probably have pretty good ideas on how you can make people afraid. Right? It's um, it's an astuteness. Like you really have to be a very astute person to to be a successful comedian. You mm-hmm. know, and aware of what your audience wants. You know, because that's yeah. your central job getting up there, right? But but having that kind of dark side as well. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they're making jokes, but you know, some of the best comedians are making us laugh about things that relatable and that we did yeah and that we may not want to laugh about but you know that's the only way we know how to handle it you know right i don't know at what point in the lead up to this film it happened where i just kind of i didn't care and like when i say i don't care it doesn't mean i wasn't worried because michael myers is such an iconic figure it was one of the first great horror films i ever saw that scared me shitless you know um so i i definitely cared but i decided after 40 years of drama. And we've seen so many other bonkers things done. And not just with Michael Myers, not just done with Michael Myers. We've seen ludicrous things done there. We've seen crazy things done with Jason and Freddy and these other iconic horror figures and horror characters that I'm like, you know what? What could it hurt to have some wildly unexpected people come in and make a Halloween movie? Like at this point, what worse could it do to, to taint the character of the brand or the idea? Uh, especially so whenever I heard they were on board and they were doing this very novel thing, I was like, cool. Why not? Why not? Yeah, because it can't get any worse than Halloween Resurrection. Oh, so, God, no. Right. Yeah. We all do. This is the bar. Yeah. <laughs> so. What, you mean no kung fu for Michael Myers? Oh, my God. Well, and even, you know, Rob Zombie is a horror guy, but he didn't handle the material that well. I don't like Rob Zombie. Um, no. So, I, every, okay, so I, he has good ideas, and he has he's very good at creating visceral horror. Yeah. As in whenever, like, the horror is happening, I am just unnerved and, like, disturbed. I don't like his characters. I don't like why. I yeah. don't like how every character in his movie is like a really dumb hillbilly. Like he's um, great about mood and setting. Yes, he's not great with character and narrative. No. And, and his films always look great, but I, personally, I don't think he's made a good film since House of a Thousand Corpses. That's just my personal take because that one wasn't taking itself that seriously and I feel, I feel like that's sort of his problem going forward in his career is he's just taking himself way too seriously uh, but I love White Zombie and some of his solo work so you know oh no his music <laughs> know, yeah, music, music is a totally different ball game my friend <laughs> totally um, game, yeah. but I will say one thing that I appreciate about his they were, he had some novel ideas while I think his execution was massively flawed there yeah. was some interest at least you know what else is at least it was taking the franchise in some unexpected new places, which I, I didn't appreciate at the time, but in the year of our Lord, 2018, where I feel like there's nothing original in any studio film anymore. Looking back, I was like, you know what? Not good. Novel. And interesting. Yeah. So I'm happy to report as we jump into our actual review portion, like, Hey, did this movie work? Did it work? I think this worked great. Cause I did feel like I had seen something I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nods. Sure. There's nods and Easter eggs to the original film. But there were more times than not that I was really enjoying the movie. I was really invested in the characters. I had fun, and I felt like I hadn't seen this copy and pasted from any other horror movie that came out in the last five years. Mm, so, yeah. what, what did you guys think? I agree. I think it. I think it was. Um, it's weird. It's it's actually freed of convolution. It just feels like the whole film is very is stripped to the bare bones. It's a very efficiently lean, mean, you know, kind of um, just straight to the basics horror film. And I think that works very well here. They keep 
the core elements to the story that you want to see. And obviously we have a strong heroine with Lori Stroud. That that really keeps it, you know, brings us back to the nostalgia, nostalgic period of the, of the original. But it doesn't turn into its own, you know, into like a messy, you know, convoluted project. So, but I yep. thought it, I thought it was, it worked very well on that, right? Yeah, it definitely, it, it felt like an original film, despite the fact there were lots of beats that came from previous films, um, including the original, but also a lot of the sequels. And yet I never felt as though what was happening was predictable. I never, yeah. I never found myself going, well, I know exactly what's going to happen le- uh, next. In fact, there were several times where I was really not sure. I was like, is this you know, person going to survive this is, are they not going to survive? I I think it's a fundamental question. Like Laurie Strode, is she going to make it to this movie? Because the way it was marketed and even the way she's presented in the film is this is what she's lived her entire life to fight this guy one more time. Right. And you know, for me at least I was like, I don't, I don't know if she's going to make it out of this. Like, is she, I mean, uh, and we'll we'll talk more about that in spoilers, but I just think that's a really great way to create suspense. Yeah. Um, And, and of course you have to give up for Jamie Lee Curtis for, for delivering a really excellent performance. She's taking this very seriously. And I think it shows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, again, you remove this whole aspect of Michael only wants to kill his family members. And that means it's an open playing field at that point. You know, anyone can die. Once we got into the sequels and we got into that mythology, it was like, well, it was only if characters really got in his way of getting to Laurie. Or if they'd broken any of the cardinal rules of horror movies, you know, well, which, yeah. you know, what I love. Well, well yeah, yeah, no, no it's, it's non It's nonsensical. It's but nonsense, that, but yeah, that was but. that's what I, I like about this film is. Uh, there was a period, of course, in the 80s, and I'd even say early 90s, really up until you got to the the Scream era of horror filmmaking, where, and Scream, of course, the reason this changes because Scream went out of its way to point out, hey, you get killed if you have sex, do drugs, XYZ. Right. This movie totally ignores all of that. Yep. Um, and I, I love, it doesn't play into any of those ideas once. That's a good point. I didn't even realize that now that I see that now. Yeah. I mean, I That's guess awesome. if, I, the only thing I could run into is he kills. He just kills anybody, you know. There's yeah. no he doesn't he doesn't really think about like it doesn't seem yeah. like he has any, there's no pattern. He just is a guy who has a goal, uh, which is uh, I don't even know he doesn't even have a clear goal in the movie. He just shows up and starts killing people. Yeah, he, I've often I've often said that if he has one motivation, it's just to spread terror, and yeah. that's it. That's all he wants. I've always looked at Michael Myers as just I don't I don't look at him as a human. Look at him as a catalyst for we're really focused on how people react to him and what it says about our our human nature. You know, it's not. I think he's a blank slate for that reason, for us to kind of project whatever it is that it, we're afraid of, you know. But well, and the film keeps that ambiguous too. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the movie even uh, so, the movie follows uh, God bless us, podcasters oh, who are those guys. Who, who are trying to. And I mean, I don't feel like it's too much of a spoiler because it opens with the sequence where they're trying to interview, trying to get him to talk for an interview. And of course, he's Michael Myers; he's not going to talk. But uh, I, I like that they kept that ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So, what motivates him? I don't know. What scares you the most about? Mm-hmm. What, like, do you do you want to have? Is it scary if he has motivation or not? And if he does, maybe you start to invent your own. I think they leave that blank slate. Uh, very open. Uh, I don't think that the it's nearly as subtle as the original. No. This definitely is a very modernized sequel. Uh, there's like it's a, grislier for sure. Yeah, yes, uh, it's not as reliant on suspense. Um, but but it, even in that, there is quite a bit of suspense in it. Yeah, uh, but not nearly as reliant. Yeah. Um, a lot of younger people, I, I I I hear every now and then they say that the original Halloween is boring. It's oh like, yeah. Well, that's just because you're used to you know jump scares and people getting killed every you know right. few minutes or whatever. So right, right, right. Um, so th- this film, I think, kind of caters to that to a degree, in that you know they know younger audience is probably going to be seeing this film. 
home. So, but it, but it's, it's not in a gratuitous way. It never feels like what we're watching is violence for the sake of violence or, um, that it's, it's simply just catering to any sort of bloodlust or, or gore hounds or anything like that. I, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, because despite the fact that it, it is a more grisly film, there's no bones about it. I still feel like easily the most grisly moments are still off camera. Yeah. Cause there, there are, there are points yeah. in the movie where you see the bodies dead and you're the like, aftermath. Whoa, yeah. he wrecked that person. So they're they're yeah. still leaving some to our imagination. Like right. now, how did he get that guy's jaw ripped off that way? <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause yeah. you did, it's all, we always, we kept saying as we, he starts, we see the start of violence and then we see the aftermath and we're like, there, he, he did, he wasn't done with this person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but one thing in particular, there's one sequence in particular that does, uh, plays into the, the, the one take idea, which is really hot and popular right now. And it is cool. Anytime you can have a long take, mm-hmm. I say one take, sorry, long take, not a one take. It's a long tra- uh, take tracking shot that just follows Michael Myers around doing stuff. Feels like it's a lot more contemporary. But uh, I'll tell you what, man, it still leaves, one, it still leaves a lot up to the imagination. And I, I just really felt like I got a vibe of what's, what does Michael Myers normally do? Because normally, classic horror movie rule is we see we don't see him get from point A to B. We just know he, he gets to point B somehow and the yeah. right where he needs to be. This movie just shows him walking, walking around the streets and like, hey, what, what's he doing? How does he move? Okay. Bumping in the kids and yeah. walking in, in people's garages. and <laughs> yeah. It was such an integral part, too, because you really you see how machine like he is in, mm-hmm. in there. I mean, there's one particular long take where, you know, he walks down a driveway and you see it in, in one of the trailers as well. He walks down this driveway, picks up a hammer inside a garage, goes into the back door and, you know, he's just sort of following this woman who's making a sandwich, um, which again is of course a nod to Halloween too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, it's just, he's so, he's so mechanical in so many ways, but also still, human in some ways, you know, because he's, it's like he's wearing a human face, you yeah. know, I mean, which literally he is, he's wearing a mask that's shaped after a human face, yeah. but he's like an alien life form that's learning our, the ways of common human. Right. People. But it's like, he has one directive. One. Yeah. But one, yeah. One, one mission for and sure. It's destroyed. Just, just killing. <laughs> now, like, kill. You're right. Cause it shows how efficient he is. Like he doesn't stop to think about it. He just finds, okay, I need to kill someone, find a weapon, kill them. However, it, whatever it takes, get new weapon, move on to the next victim. Yeah. And the next victims, it ran, it, it's random. Like it's there's, random. there's no, he bumps into tons of people. He doesn't kill. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was a fresh way to present Michael Myers and it really subverts the tropes without, Doing the thing, and I, and I want to see what you guys think. I never thought that the, the film has lots of nods. There's only one where I really felt like they were like winking at the camera, and it's towards the end of the movie. And even then, I still don't think it was nearly as wink at the camera as it could have been. Um, I never felt like any of the winks or nods to the originals took me out of the movie or made me forget. Uh, it was more like I, I thought about it afterwards. I was like, oh, yeah, that was a cool nod to the original. But I never felt like any of that ever got in the way. No, what would no. you guys think? no. I think every time, are you referring to the ones with Lori? Uh, there's some some of them with Lori. Okay, uh, so uh, but the sandwich is another example of like a random nod to the yeah. original. Well, the two with Lori, the one in particular, like the, um, towards the end, but um, but also in the beginning when you know when the granddaughter's looking out of the, out of the window and she's oh, yes. there, yeah. And then the second one where Michael is looking down at her in the ground, and I she, he cuts away for a moment. I'm like, if she is not. If she, if she is not vanquished from that that moment right there, I will be very disappointed. And then she was gone. So I love that. I love that thought because each time that happened, I felt like it empowered her character a little bit more. Um, because, it, and it pulls, it does something something like your next does without being as nearly as in your face about it, but where it, oh yeah. wait, well, let's yeah. not forget, Michael Myers might be hunting, but he's well, also being hunted just yeah. as much by well, Laurie Strode. It's reminding us that this is not 
the Laurie Stroud that we once knew. Mm-hmm. She is not the victim anymore. She's playing him at his own game. And that and that that was very um, exciting in a way, too. Because it's like, well, we don't know how this is going to play out. Has Michael met his equal? You know, or... You well, know, in, in particular, the the scene um, where she's... You know, it's, it's, a, and it's an exact recreation of the original scene with uh, Laurie's granddaughter in the classroom. Uh, interestingly enough, too, the teacher, the voice work of the teacher is P.J. Souls, who played Linda. Uh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't so know that. Nice little cameo from P.J. Souls there. Um, but yeah, she looks out the window, she sees Lori. And what's what I think is great about that, too, is that, you know, in the original film, Lori sees Michael. She's being stalked. Um, and with this, here's someone who... Um, her name is Allison, correct? That, that's the... Yeah, I believe so, yes. 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 Um, Allison doesn't really know her grandmother well. In a lot of ways, her grandmother is kind of a boogeyman to her mm-hmm. in some ways. Her mother, her own mother, um, Judy Greer's character, has warned her about Laurie, about, you know, she's dangerous, she's unhinged. Not that she's going to hurt her necessarily, but, you know, she's going to... There's psychological damage there. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that, like, Laurie's own PTSD, her own trauma has affected her granddaughter in this indirect way. And the way that the whole entire film plays with this idea of how trauma affects not just the person who experiences it, but all of the people in their life. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought I did, I thought that reversal of, of the moment from the original Halloween was especially brilliant for that reason, mm-hmm. that it's not just like this visceral boogeyman who's coming and killing people, fear, terror, these boogeymen or boogie people, if you will, um, can come from your own family. Yeah. Oh, you know. yeah. Real, His influence is permeated in different ways. Yeah. Like it's manifested in right. different places. Exactly. Yeah. No. I, I, Christopher, you hit on something I, I liked a lot of it. I do want to save a little bit of it uh, for our, our spoiler conversation. But I, I. But I. But I will say too. I think that's a great point. Is that some of the the nods and the that they they do incorporate in the movie are done so in in which to communicate an idea to the audience. Uh, and and I, th- I think what you you said just highlighted it brilliantly, which is the real boogeyman. Michael Myers is a boogeyman, but the real the real thing that has ruined Laurie Stroud's life is the fear she has of Michael Myers coming again. Because mm-hmm. Michael Myers has been locked up for 40 years. Yeah. That's 40 years of her life. She has lived in pure terror that she has passed on to her children. And uh, trick. it's even trickled down to her grandchildren. Yeah. Um, wound up in, like, what was it, two or three divorces? I, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's rough stuff. And I think that's a really powerful idea that works its way throughout the film. Um, and 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 even get some some sort of uh, closure in the end as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I and I think it's nice because this film I think does pay off on those ideas. A lot of times films work those ideas like oh we're going to acknowledge PTSD we're going to yeah. acknowledge this but we're not really going to like take it bring it home. Well, H two O is a great example of that yes. where you know we 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 sort of go there and then we don't really deal with it. Mm-hmm. And and you know I'm I'm a fan of H two O. Obviously I wrote a piece on it. You know I I enjoy the film. Uh, but I understand that it does have flaws. It, it does have ways where in which it could be fixed in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, and and this film, I think, does that. Really, it takes, in a lot of ways, it takes all the sequels. It takes sort of the best elements of all the sequels and sort of lumps them all together into this one, like, really good sequel mm-hmm. to the original film. Um, and I admire that. But uh, but H2O, you know, has a lot of nods, too. Like uh, the, the Alan Alda, not Alan Alda, um, Alan Arkin's character yes. dies the exact same way as the nurse does in mm-hmm. in Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like, well, this that's a fun little reference to the Halloween 2, but 
to what end. Right. right? right. And this right. film is like, we're going to weave these nods in, but they're going to be, there's Purposeful. going to be purpose. Yeah. It's not just there for everyone to go like, I remember that. It's, it's all, oh, you remember that. So you remember what it meant in this movie. So it actually means something different in this yeah. movie. Well, in context, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Very cool. So how, how would you guys say that this stacks up against the other Halloween sequels? If it's not second, it's third for me in the franchise. Um, I'd need to see it a second time um, to confirm that. But um, as soon as I walked out, I would say it for me, to, for me, it is the second best in the franchise. What's the one it's closely competing with? Uh, probably H2O or, H2O. yeah, for me personally. Yeah, I would say, you know, my, my ranking has always been, you know, Halloween, Halloween 2, and then it kind of gets scrambled from there. Um, but I would definitely say this film tops Halloween 2 um, for me. Um, it does, it does, it does everything that I would ever want a Halloween sequel to do. You know, as I mentioned, erases the whole sibling connection, which again, I don't mind, but I think it works better if it's not there. What adds a lot of unnecessary implications that don't necessarily make for a compelling follow-up film. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I would say like, to me, this is like the real proper sequel that, that we never really got before. Um, so yeah, it's, it's right up there, right underneath the original. It's a sequel we never probably got before, but we only could have gotten if it was 40 years away from the original. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't think it could have happened really in any other time other than now. So we had to wait 40 years for it, but yeah, I'm only, I'm, I'm not quite 40, so I haven't been waiting my entire life. So. <laughs> <laughs> think about that. There have been people who've been waiting longer than we've all been alive. Uh, right? this I know. Movie. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, Those who were there opening night in the 1978 film. Yeah. They John do. Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'm with the table. I, I, I also like H2O quite a bit, but I think it's funny. The things I like about HP H2O are present in this movie, except for, like I said earlier, they commit to the ideas that H2O said is, which is, Hey, how does this trauma wreck your life and change how you interact with the people you love? This movie commits to it and it follows it through. I think it, uh, while it does lose a lot of the subtlety that we got with the original and the subtlety that made the original great. Unfortunately, I think horror movies, fortunately, unfortunately it's bittersweet. Uh, horror movies have changed and they're just a lot different today than they were, uh, you know, 40 years ago. So what we lose in subtlety, I think the script makes up for with, uh, and, and how clever it is, mm-hmm. uh, both the script and the execution, like I said, incorporating nods, to the original that also means something entirely different. Uh, and also make it, it's a funny movie too. I don't know that bothers some people that their horror, their Michael Myers movies funny. This movie's really funny, but it never, the, 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 the humor never one. It never keeps me from taking the, the, the lives of the, the characters were falling. Um, seriously. I always was very invested in two. Everything doesn't have to be dour all the time. This is as much as Halloween is a classic that we love. And I do borderline put on a pedestal as one of the greatest horror movies of all time. It's still just a movie and <laughs> Halloween has a ser- uh, has a history of being ridiculous but not acknowledging that it's ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I appreciated that the injected humor kind of lightened it up a little bit. And the original film has a lot of horror, or, uh, excuse me, comedy uh, oh, yeah. as well. Tons yeah. of humor in the first yeah. film. The, the way I would describe this, if I was describing this to someone, I would say this movie feels kind of like a good Halloween-themed uh, horror carnival ride or something on those lines. More depth to it than that, though. I give it. I give it a little more credit than that. But it does. The production value is much better. Much better. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, I, what I mean is, this movie takes me on a ride, and it shows me all the things I love about Halloween the most. And a very because, as you said, Laurent, it's a very lean movie. It's only like an hour and a half long. Yes. Yeah, um, and it, it captures all the things I liked about the original. New horrors, new thrills. So it feels like a sequel, and it feels like it evolved. Uh, but at the same time, I. I, I I walked away feeling like, man, that was a great time. Am I going to lose sleep over it? Probably not. But I just think inherently the concept of Michael Myers and these serial killers has changed 
so dramatically since 1978 that it means something different. Yeah. So I appreciated it. I thought it was a fun time, and it's also it's fun, but there's an, a, a, but there's enough meat on the bones that you can drill down and think about it a little more um, as a commentary on horror. Even let's move to our recommendations section. Of course, uh, buy the film means we're going to go out. We're gonna see it in the theater, but also purchase it later when it comes out on home video, uh, full price, which means you go to the VIP seating in the theater. Uh, you spend all the money and enjoy the show. Uh, matinee is self-explanatory. Uh, you have streaming it, which is just save it until it's uh, on your favorite sh- preferred streaming service. Uh, and then, or do we skip or trash it all together? Uh, Christopher Schultz, I'm going to start with you. How would you recommend the film? Uh, the the buy tier, the top tier. Um, I, I want it. I, I immediately wanted to watch it again after, after watching it. Um, and I'm eager to see it again. Um, I, I will probably own it uh, on Blu-ray once it's out. Um, I'll probably get as many editions as comes out. Um, and that's true of, you know, I mean, this is my favorite of the franchises for sure. Um, hands down, but this one in particular just feels very special. Um, it feels like, and it it feels like it's really, it's not just for one particular crowd. It there's, there's so much that everyone's going to like. Um, my wife, for instance, she doesn't hate the Halloween movies by any means, but it's not, her thing, but, uh, she hasn't seen it yet, but I, I feel confident that she's going to love this movie. Um, and, and, and that to me makes it feel very special mm-hmm. there, it, you know, in the same way that the original is special and you can, you can dissect it and you can, you can say, you know, it's not a run of the mill slasher movie. You know, it's, it's not like Friday the 13th. It's, it, there is something very special about it. And that's, that's how this film is. So yeah, I feel very partial to it. Excellent. Well, Ron? I'm going to say uh, see it in the theaters with an audience because I think that's also part of the appeal of seeing it in the purest form. If that uh, wasn't implied, me too. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But also, yes, yes, buy it as well. Um, but see it in theaters first because I think that's just it's just one of those films that demands that kind of, um, you know, that kind of appeal. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, uh, the, getting that audience uh, interaction and getting the audience feeding off each other, and especially with the Halloween film, where everyone knows kind of what they're in for, like it just made it so much fun. Uh, I, I think the, the audience interaction is critical. Um, so yes, I'm going to make the same recommendation. I think it's absolutely a buyer. I think this is more than most of the sequels. You should have this one on your shelf right next to the original film, uh, in addition to paying the full price to see it in the theater. All right, gentlemen. Well, we're going to take here uh, just a few minutes to talk about the... Cause we're going to spoil the film a little bit and talk about some of the things we liked that might be spoilerific and delve into some of the ideas that work there. So if you do not want to be spoiled on the 2018 Halloween, go ahead and tune out now. Trick or treat, motherfucker. All right, guys, so spoilers. Michael Myers is totally dead. They killed him definitively. There's no way he's ever coming back. I couldn't believe they did it either. I know. Lies, <laughs> lies. No. I, I really... I. Because I honestly, I don't want another sequel uh, no. to the film. Um, it, when it comes out, I will probably go see it. I will too. I will too. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I knew sort of going into this that there would be room left open for, for a sequel if this was a success. And I mean, the money it's made this weekend alone. The we, biggest Halloween opening of all time. Yeah. 77 million, right? It's mm-hmm. up. It, it was like 110 oh. last time. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, it's, okay. it's made a ton of money. So, I mean, yeah, we're going to get another Halloween film. Um, <laughs> But that being said, I mean, I knew that going into it. So, I mean, do we want to talk about the ending first? Yeah, let's I, I th- jump. Yeah, let's let's hit the ending first. We'll okay. talk about the entire last sequence yeah. uh, with the house. It's so good, and this is where this is where we we've been waiting. We see Laurie Strode has been preparing her entire life. Has a has a 
basement underneath the island in her kitchen yeah. that actually <laughs> moves back and forth. Like she is with the with the, an arsenal of weaponry. So it's like, yeah. yeah. What it, what was so wonderful about it, and since since we're fully into terror, uh, spoiler territory, is there is a bit of a twist to mm-hmm. um, to the proceedings, and we've seen this in the trailer. She's been preparing, and there's it, it's commented on throughout that this is this is a cage for her, this is a prison for her. That that as much as Michael Myers has been imprisoned this whole time, she's imprisoned herself mm-hmm. by living out in the middle of nowhere, by having all these gates and security systems. And this, you know, a panic room uh, via the basement that, you know, you have to move the island by remote control in her kitchen to get to it. Um, what it what it, we reveal at the end of the film is that this actually wasn't a, a prison for her. It was a cage for the shape for Michael mm-hmm. Myers. Um, the whole thing was planned to get him trapped down in the basement so that they could then set fire to the entire house, which yeah. incidentally is was modeled after the. My, either the Myers house or the Lindsay Wallace house. This one, um, oh. Lindsay Wallace house. The yeah. Lindsay Wallace house. Yeah. Um, so, and it, it, it's such a great twist at the end. It's sort of this, you don't really see it coming, especially with, um, with Karen, uh, Laurie's daughter played by Judy Greer. Oh, that was a great moment, by the way. Such a great oh. That was, that was great. Yeah. This, this movie has a couple of gotcha moments. Um, there was, I have literally, I have heard, <laughs> yeah, I've heard some people complaining about them. I quite, I found them to be a nice fun touch because Judy Greer is like, Oh my God, I've got this gun. Michael Myers here. Oh, I can't do it. Yeah. Oh, it's Calling terrible. Laurie, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, Laurie, I can't do it. And then Michael Myers makes a movie. And she's like, gotcha. Pah, yeah, shoots yeah. him. And it was, that was right great. in the other eye. Great <laughs> crowd cheering. Moment. Cause we'd seen her like she just as much like her had been preparing for it even if even if you know she didn't want to yeah um so it was really nice to see because this damsel in distress moment but really it's very strategic you yeah. know and they all were playing his game you so. know she she was very uh skeptical that michael would ever get out and even if he did would he do what he did before right um so when she's com- but she, she's confronted with a moment of like you know my daughter's in danger at this point this is real he has killed numerous people at this point uh he's killed her husband at this point yeah her husband is her gone. husband was a dumb dumb sorry he was, he was, a dumb, he was probably yeah, the he dumbest was, guy action we saw in the movie and he was already from pete and pete so you know what do you expect <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, he's not long for this world he's not long um but yeah, so it was such a great moment. Like you know, I've I've hated this. I resent my mother for for raising me this way. But I'm gonna step up when yeah. when push comes to shove. And and it was such a great moment. It's a callback to Halloween too, as well, because he they you know he burns rather right. than being stabbed or shot or whatever. Um, I, I did like how they brought it back to Judy Greer because there's this back and forth between Judy Greer and of course uh, Jamie Lee Curtis throughout the film. Um, the idea is, was it worth it? And initially yeah. we see Laurie Stroud saying, well, man, yes, of course, even though nothing yeah. has happened yet. She's like, well, of course, this is this is it just in case, you know, I prepared you. If anything ever goes wrong in your life, you are ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at the end of the film, once they finally got Michael trapped, she's like, I'm so sorry for what I did. In which case, kind of weird because Judy's like, Greer's like, yeah, no, cool. It worked out. Right. But but it's <laughs> right. but I felt I felt like that was kind of her. Yeah. The character arc for Laurie Stroud, which is we see it throughout the beginning of the film, that she cannot connect with her family even when presented multiple opportunities and grace to do so because she has just shut herself off. And her going through this entire traumatic experience makes her realize that she has not held her family close enough in the ways um, yeah. that she would prefer. And so I thought it was a nice touch. Yeah, I thought they committed to the idea and went and through with it. And they bonded through that. That's the same. They're they're bonded through their trauma, you know. And that's the you know that is the connection between them in that yeah. sense. Yeah. And it, it does, it sort of leaves you. And, and I mean, if we are going to get a, a sequel, which, you know, obviously, we, of course, I mean, it's going to happen. Um, what I'm really hopeful for is that 
this this family dynamic will continue to be explored that they can put together a script that is as good as what was what they turned out uh this time but that further relies on these three generation of of women who are now having to deal with this and and what are the ramifications of this so let's go further you know now you know studios always take the wrong lessons away from these things like literally mm-hmm. every single time but it really feels like that's the direction if they, they yeah. set it up to where if they do make a sequel that feels like where it's go because the, the final shot of the movie is the three ladies sitting in the back of the the, the, the pickup truck great shot uh, on the way home and it's a freeze frame on the, the young the and then on a Allison's, bloody Allison's yeah. got holding a bloody knife because she has had to deal with this traumatic violence. She's still going to be affected for the rest of her yeah. life. So how is that going to impact the family? Yeah, uh, and Bloomhouse is is pretty reliable when it comes to that. You know, they they're they're pretty good. Um, I mean, they're. I haven't seen just all of like their their franchises that they've tried to set up um, over or that they have set up over the years. But you know, they. It seems to me that they're not strictly in it for the bucks, you know. Right. They they it, it make an effort quality movies, yeah. So so I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, will we get as good of a film? Maybe, probably not. maybe not. But yeah. You know. well, well, at this point, and here's the thing that's interesting with this franchise: it's like we probably won't get a movie as good. The, the worry I always have though is, will the sequel retroactively ruin the great movie that came before? Because yeah, we've seen yeah. that happen time and time yeah. again. Even H2O movie I like, but then we got Resurrection. Yeah, which really takes the steam out of and the wind out of H two O, or the Curse of Michael Myers retroactively ruins every film that came before that movie. Mm-mm. Yeah, so uh, that's my goal. As long as they can, yeah, Bloomhouse, I agree, tends to have to make good films. Yeah, it's how are they going to handle the follow ups? That's the that's the real key. And and keeping Carpenter involved, I really I've read a lot of articles about the advice that he gave. The, the, you know, and the reason why it looked like the Lindsay Wallace house, uh, the, the house that Laurie was living in, is because they wanted to reshoot the beginning of the film of the first film, and they wanted to retcon the ending where the shape actually kills Loomis. Oh yes. in that scene. Yeah. Um, and Carpenter talked him out of it. He, he like was like, listen, this is not going to go well. The audience is going to hate you for it, mm-hmm. and it just makes no sense. It's convoluted. Don't do it. Um, so I think as someone who is you know wise and old and who is obviously attached to this, uh, this franchise, uh, keep him on board for sure. And yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're dead. We've got the, we, you know, we're going to be better off, I think, if, if he's on board. Well, hopefully we've got, uh, you know, younger people who have a little more reverence for John Carpenter than he had 40 years ago, you know. <laughs> um, now, uh, we have, we can't, we have, you have to talk about the, the big twist that's just tied into one of the themes I wanted to touch on, which uh, uh, the, the, the film, one of the themes of the film, especially when discussing uh, Michael Myers, The Shape, one of the things that was cool about them removing the second movie from the canon, which is uh, Laurie Stroud is no longer related to Michael Myers, which just makes him this killer who is killing for no reason other than to terrify and to kill and to, to ruin lives. And I think they play off that idea pretty well. And one of the ways the film attempts to tackle this idea of this unstoppable evil is by having the doctor who is the Loomis step in, being fascinated with it so fascinating that he actually really engineers this entire incident from the mm-hmm. in the first place More because he that. wants to see what michael myers will do out in the wild yeah so uh, of course this this is a, a twist that doesn't come until about halfway through the film i wanted to get your take did you guys think this worked was it necessary laron what'd you think i didn't expect it but i also think that he was trying to comment on the fact that we do have this culture of people who are obsessed with serial killers and glorification of violence. And so I think that that was also just a commentary on our desensitization to violence. And so I think, I mean, it made it more modern. It made it very much more, you know, of the now. But, I mean, I don't necessarily, I didn't expect it. I don't necessarily think it was necessary, though. Okay. 
All right, Christopher, anything you'd like to add to that? Um, I do actually think it was it was necessary um, simply because, as you said, it's it's a commentary, um, but it, it definitely plays into this idea that we have to explain everything. That yeah. Everything has to be dissected, that everything. And um, so this is, this is actually very like it's, it's fatal. It's a fatal flaw for this doctor character, not only because, you know, he ends up getting killed by Michael in probably the most graphic death of the entire film. Um, he gets his head stomped in uh, by Michael. Brutally, brutally, brutally. Um, but um, like a pumpkin. Like a pumpkin. <laughs> Um, and then he becomes a jacket lantern. Um, so, uh, but yeah, he not only it's not only fatal for that because he dies, but also because uh, too. So, like what Caleb said, he's he probably orchestrated all of this. He, you know, he probably is the one who got Michael freed. Well, it's kind of implied because they go out of their way to show early in the film, and I, I, I don't, I don't like to, spe- I, I don't like to try to predict movies. I like to just let them kind of happen, and then I retroactively yeah. think about it. But I definitely thought it was weird that they est- they had an establishing shot worth him getting on the bus saying, "I don't know, I'm going to see my patient through to the end," yeah. and then he was also weirdly one of the guys to survive. I kind of like caught on to it a little bit i kind of wish i hadn't because it was a cool twist but i was like i don't trust for whatever reason i I stopped trusting i remember you whispered that in my ear like i I, I never trusted him yeah Yeah. but i also feel like in him doing so it also kind of feels like that character um it also dispels the whole myth that that michael myers has to have a motivation because he's so fixated on this idea that you know, I'm going to find the root of why he is the way he is. And he's we the one who leads uh, Michael to Laurie ultimately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Michael, Michael really has no interest in reconnect. Like, he's not trying to find her. And yeah. that, that's made very clear. He's just killing for, just for killing the sake him. of it. You know, he's not he's not looking for Laurie. He's not really interested in her. He sees her and he's like, oh, yeah, you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's this, this kind of this like, yeah, this bitch. I, can, <laughs> I, I stalked her 40 years ago. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's ultimately the doctor who leads Michael to. And then Michael's just doing what he does. He finds the next house. He's going to murder whoever's in there. Um, so it, it was and it brings it brings to me to this logical conclusion of Loomis, which is Loomis was so obsessed but only in the sense that he wanted to destroy the evil. Um, and that's where he and Laurie... He's more like, like a, he's more like a ca- Captain Ahab type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Laurie takes... It, Laurie is the new Loomis, quote-unquote, in this regard, in that she understands. Like, yes, it's the boogeyman, and we should be afraid. Right. And we need to stop him. And and the cop, the, the sheriff character, has a line. Uh, he says, there's a reason we're supposed to be afraid of this night. Yeah. And that plays into that as well. This doctor wants to study it. He wants to understand it to the point where he becomes obsessed, but in an, but in a, in an insane way, in the opposite way that Loomis was obsessed in that he wants to actually see Michael kill. He wants Michael to destroy lives and he wants Michael to find Lori again because he has this crackpot theory that somehow they feed off each other and they, they get energy from it. Yeah. He, go, he goes through this and it makes no sense what right. he, what he says. But, um, so yeah, I, I thought, and, and then especially too, when considering the idea of like, not not just our culture's obsession, but like the things the 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 evil that like men can unleash onto the world. Oh and yeah, I think that definitely plays into this idea because Michael's just a killing machine. He's the one with the intellect. He's the one who has these crackpot ideas about what generates this evil, what causes this evil, yeah. and and I think that goes to the core of again, like there are some things that are just fundamentally wrong about mm-hmm. this world, and there's just not anything we can do about it. Right. 
Well, it reminds me a little bit going back to Laurent's piece about uh, the commentary and uh, the culture we have that has been so obsessed with figuring evil out. I mean, it just reminds me of all the true crime podcasts out there. Where, oh, yeah. And there are some of these out there where I listen that are very popular. I will not mention any names of these podcasts, but where I listen, I'm like, these people are really into this, yeah. like in a way that I find grossly uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, obsessing over their their subjects who are crazed killers most of the time. And I, I think there's something to be said about that that I, I appreciated it that worked pretty well. I do think he was necessary. I don't. I I didn't feel like it, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to say it wasn't subtle because clearly I was not. I just caught on to it sooner than I wish I had would have. Yeah. But it was a, it was a nice touch because I think it did add an extra bit of commentary uh, and a film again that isn't super long. So I would you wouldn't think there'd be a lot to be said in an hour and a half, but they say an awful lot. And I guess I just mean the reveal, the way it's the way it's executed, the reveal is executed. If that was his motivation all along, I guess you know that it, it was more so how it happens in that particular moment with the car sequence that where I felt a little bit more like, okay, I see where this is going. But right. a little, it was one of those moments that winked at the camera for me that wasn't um, as subtle as it could have been, you know, but yeah, I sure. mean, but the character himself and like what it says about, you know, um, our culture and our obsession with violence is, was interesting for sure. All right, guys. Well, uh, we have talked about a lot, a lot, a lot of Halloween and unfortunately we are about out of time. Is there anything else you would like to add about Halloween 2018 before we wrap the conversation today? Go see it. See it. See it with your friends. See it multiple times. That's what I'm going to say. And yes, see it with your friends. Um, All right. Well, gentlemen, before we close out, uh, where can people find you online? Christopher Schultz. Uh, Just go to my website. That's the easiest place. ChristopherSchultz.com. That's S-H-U-L-T-Z because, you know, Charles Schultz ruined my life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, ChristopherSchultz.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and everything from there. LeRon Chapman? You can find me on Twitter and Facebook under my name, LeRon Chapman, and you can follow my feature film, You People, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash youpeoplemovie. There's more film festivals rolling out by the week. All right, and of course, you can find me on Twitter tweeting about all the things uh, at Seamasters Talk. That's letter Seamasters Talk and our social media channels here on The Cinematropolis at The Cinematrop on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning into this month's review of Halloween. Now, don't lock your door and hide under the covers just yet. When we come back, Alexander Bohannon will be talking some of the horror genre's most frightening film scores. Don't go away.
everyone, and welcome to Soundtrack, your friendly neighborhood film music podcast on the cinematic schematic powered by thecinematropolis.com. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and I'm the host of Soundtrack, your guide and curator for this segment. But as always, I'm never alone. Joining me in our official podcasting studio, sir, will you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Caleb Masters, your voice of the cinematic schematic. Always happy here to be talking film scores with Alex. Alex, it's been it's, a long time since it, we've it, done one of these. It feels like it's been a cool minute because um, here at Soundtrack, we have like some really really cool and exciting new stuff rolling down the track coming to audio near you. One of these things is a project. It's an interview project where me and Caleb will be interviewing uh, composers, uh, YouTube composers, uh, video game composers, anybody I honestly feel relevant to the world of composing will be interviewed by us. I don't feel like I have to justify myself to anyone. Although they've, they've all worked in film to some absolutely, capacity. Yes, absolutely. There is that tie there. So uh, that's going to be rolling out to your earbuds um, very, very soon. And we're going to be starting with some humdinger of a guest i cannot spoil i will not spoil but guys the hype train the hype train is real we've got some cool interviews uh ready for you uh starting in november so keep your ears open subscribe if you're not subscribed subscribe now if you want to hear these interviews yeah you Uh, don't even have to change an rss feed they're gonna be right here just delivered straight to your brain well, I mean, if you have like an implant or something or on the cinematic schematic. schematic. And, and I wanted, uh, wanted to ask you really quickly, Alexandra, like uh, what led to you wanting to interview film composers? What? OK, so what led me to want to interview people? I, I feel like so much of this show, I think we're, you know, Caleb and I, we are smart, capable, talented human beings. And I don't mind being a little egotistical about that. But one thing that we don't have is an actual job in the field. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff that I'm like, man, I think this is what this composer is doing here. But you know, I, I, I'm not a composer, so I don't know for sure. Now I can actually talk to people uh, who are actually in the field doing this work to get their, you know, the, their kind of artistic process, you know, how they go about some of their things. And, and also like this whole new media approach to co- composing, you don't just compose for um, TV, games, and movies anymore. You're composing for podcasts. You're composing for YouTube. You're composing for web comics. I mean, all of that's going to be within this this wheelhouse that we're talking to these people um, who have been doing this work, uh, which I think is so important and artistically important. Yeah, it's 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 so vital to furthering our understanding of film is to talk to the people that associated with these amazing big budget movies or famous movies or indie movies, whatever they're associated with, but they just don't get as a lot of love, you know? Well, I think the idea was born out of the fact that we were we've talked to so many film composers and we're like we don't know if they're not John Williams, Michael Giacchino, Danny Elfman, we don't know who they are. Yeah. So there's so many film composers who have created incredible sounds Absolutely. that we don't know their names. And yes. I, I know that was something you talked about. Like, hey, why don't we just go out and find these people and find out how they work? Exactly. I mean, we want to make sure that this this art doesn't just disappear as soon as you, you're shelving a used movie at some uh, video store. Subscribe today. If you're not subscribed to the Cinematic Schematic, go ahead and subscribe today so that you can get those episodes sent straight to your device starting in November. And we're going to have one a month rolling out. And so we, uh, we get through the interviews and who knows, we might get some more in the, in the process. So yeah. So and and seriously, if, and if you know somebody or you think you know somebody, you can always tweet at me, I know we're doing plugs early, but this is a special case. You can tweet at me at Alex V. Brohannon, B-R-O-H-A-N-N-O-N, and you can tell me 
not just, I mean, if you know someone that's super great, but who would you think would be great on the show? I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we could get John Williams. <laughs> that's a, that's slightly a joke, but maybe a wish, but, um, but if you know of anybody that you think is, you know, like be right for the talking to, you should just shoot us a line. Who's a film composer who you haven't heard interviewed before. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Caleb, we're about to get spooky. It's the month of Halloween, and to celebrate, we're going to be partying hard with some of my favorite and recently discovered scary movie scores. Uh, Opening the episode, we had none other than the title theme, 1973 horror masterpiece from uh, The Exorcist, entitled Tubular Bells. Oh, Uh, man. That's such a great piece. Absolutely. Um, Something I wasn't aware of before doing the research was that tubular bells was not originally scored for this movie. Oh no. Tubular bells was written by Mike Oldfield and was released the same year. Um, so basically Mike Oldfield released an album that then William Friedkin heard this song on originally Friedkin actually had Lalo Schifrin of Mission Impossible fame. Wow. Score the film, but he didn't like it. Wow. William Friedkin, man, he's got standards, apparently. <laughs> yeah, Mission yeah. Impossible theme guy is not enough for him. Absolutely. So it was rejected. He had a working score already mocked up. It was on some trailers and did not like it. So um, Friedkin then did uh, something interesting instead, going for an approach to more about having like a soundtrack where he had um, he had some kind of contemporary classical music scored by some composers of the era, like the seventies. And then he also had this old field song, uh, entitled tubular bells, um, which is really freaking interesting because according to uh, a critic of the time, uh, tubular bells was kind of a fluke. Um, he Friedkin said he's scrapping the score by Schiffer and he's like, no, we're not going this direction. He was in the office of Atlantic records with an agent and he just picked up out. He just picked up an album. It happened to be Oldfields puts it on tubular bells is the first song plays. And he's like, this is in my movie. Wow. This is a story of, from an agent. So, I hope that's true. That's super cool. Sounds like a super Hollywood story right there. Super Hollywood story. Um, So it's only used in a couple scenes in the movie, but it has absolutely become inextricably tied to the exorcist. Well, this is the sound of the exorcist. Even if it's only used a couple times, those music cues carry a lot of emotional weight. The movie's terrifying. I ask, I mean, uh, outside of like maybe Halloween, like there's very few other films out there. I think you could ask anyone who would say, I can't watch that movie again, or I won't even watch that movie. And and this is the sound of the film. This Absolutely. is what's tied to those emotions. I know, I know my mom, anytime I mentioned that, she's like, oh, I, I, I refuse to watch that movie. I was like, wow. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. And some, there is like a lot of really, we strong visceral reaction to this film. And I think some of this score, um, well, particularly it's, it's not even so much the score. It's this one particular track, um, done by a prog rock artist in 1973 ends up making it to being on one of the best known horror movies of all time. Their soundtrack. Isn't that kind of insane? Wow. Someone lucked out. Yeah. Oldfield. <laughs> Oldfield just happened to have a CD that was right there when he was trying to play it uh, for good old William Fridkin. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's one thing that really surprised me because, you know, one thing we tend to talk a lot about is we talk about one composer who composed the entire work um, that you associate with the film. And whenever you hear something that ends up becoming like this title piece that already exists, I I think that's really fascinating. Kind of that dynamic. It's like, 
you know, you didn't just choose, oh, we just, you know, had this composer and he cut, he composed something to sound like this temp music or something like that. He, it's like, no, we're just going to get the thing. Well, yeah, just get well, normally, normally you feel like it's custom because it's something that's custom tailored to the feeling and the emotions they want to highlight in the film. So it's not as common for someone to identify a piece like that. that they want to work into the film. Yeah. And I think that's why it's particularly, um, particularly interesting. And I think this sound that we kind of established in the exorcist that was on this, like a new wave prog rock, um, ends up getting carried through a lot of, it, it gets up echoed by like composers that end up composing whole scores for films. And, and we get to the, we're going to get to a little bit of how that sound is replicated a little bit later. Um, but for right now, we're going to take, we're going to, we're going to take a bit of a break from uh, Freakin and we're going to take a break from the exorcist because we're, you're about to get majorly spooked Uh-oh. by this next track. Ooh. Are you ready? Uh, I don't know. I'm I don't, chills. Okay. You're not even ready. <laughs> No, we're not. We're not going to be that happy when we discuss our next film, Perfect Blue. Oh, snap. was Mima's theme from the 1997 directorial debut Perfect Blue by Satoshi Kone composed by Mashiro Ikumi. Alex, I thought you were playing a game from like the SNES or maybe PlayStation 1 era. Yeah. Like maybe a Resident Evil game or something. I totally it's, it's, got it's that. It's got like that like weird electronic sound to it, but also the ominous. Like I just keep picturing myself wandering around these eerie hallways and like yes. a really uh, polygonal game where I'm like, mm, and yeah. you're like, oh my God, it could jump out at any second. The fact that at that point in time, like side note, like compositions for video games, especially in that era was instrumental to making those games scary and atmospheric, especially cause it's like polygon shrug, whatever. But yeah, that's the kind of thing that is instrumental in making those work scary. And I, I know for a fact, perfect blue would not be in the same realm of unease without the score thundering and 
bemoaning underneath what we're doing uh, when we watch the film. So, Perfect Blue, if you need a reminder, uh, psychological horror anime film following the rise and then the psychological break of pop idol Mima. Um, so, one thing that's super fascinating about this particular film is that the soundtrack is divided between J-pop, candy, sweetness, cotton candy, you know, as love we, me, uh, love me. As blah, we heard blah, blah. a second ago. Exactly. That 15, <laughs> the 15 second little take there, that was from the score. It's called Angel of Love. I mean, it all sounds like anime openings for like some kind of Sailor Senshi anime. And then the rest of it is like the score in comparison is atmospheric, terrifying, repetitive, um, basically the antithesis of every single thing you could hear in a traditional J-pop track. And um, so Caleb and I actually watched this film as part of Harold Story's Tune Tunes podcast. Um, he screened Perfect Blue at the Tower Theater, and that basically was like, okay, just full, you know, record scratch. Like, I have to include this in this month's show because it is so good. I think it's a great inclusion because a couple of things. I never really considered that a horror movie. But it's definitely a horror movie. It is a psychologically traumatizing horror movie where you witness some like a descent into madness. Absolutely. Uh, from the inside of a, a young woman's head. Uh, it, so it was a really interesting choice. I'm glad you include that here in the soundtrack because uh, in the in soundtrack this month because it is a horror movie that one, it's anime, so people already inherently overlook it as a horror film. And two, it, it is a horror film, but it's because it's from a time and a place and doesn't fit into the tropes of like the air quotes horror genre. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a really interesting uh, inclusion. I'm really glad you put it in there because that soundtrack is money. Absolutely. I mean... And the the thing that bums me out so hard about this is that so composer Mashiro Ikumi, it looks like he only did like two things and Perfect Blue was like the thing that he did. And like I can't find any more information about him or anything like that. So if listener, if you know anything about uh, Ikumi, please tweet at me because I would love to learn more about this man because this soundtrack is perfect. The score for this works so well. And it really underlines a lot of the themes and tone of the film. And I think it just punches it up incredibly. Um, So it's really interesting. There's like there's like a one essay I found on on specifically Perfect Blue soundtrack on the Internet. (laughs) But most of it's like by the album, by an album release. No. okay, it's uh, from classic. It's called a website called Classic J Pop Review, and they brought up such a great point. Perfect Blue's soundtrack is much of a criticism of J Pop's frequent overproduction and excess as it is a co- commendation of it. Two of the album's pop songs are by the film composer Mashiro Akumi and Makado Masudi, and the others are by frequent pop songwriters. Uh, Misia, the vocalist for Angel of Love and Cherish These Memories, which are the two tracks that cham which is mima's uh former pop idol group mm-hmm. uh plays they were both rising j-pop stars during the time that this film came up um in 1997 so the year after perfect blues release um misia uh her debut album sold over 10 million copies so ironically the film is denouncing the very notion of j-pop stardom and then success and then deconstructs it mm-hmm. and then uses like the J-pop as a contrast against the score, which sounds nothing like J- J-pop. Wow. Yeah. That, that is a really a interesting good, way to like reverse engineer the soundtrack for this movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it also, 
it's interesting having, I, I love seeing uh, films that have music within them, but the, the music like music in the music industry is part of the film, but it's not like a biopic and it's not, you know, we're not hearing music because it is about music. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it exists in the world of the film exactly. and it's original and it's not like a pop song that exists in our own universe. Exactly. And, and that is able to leverage some really interesting things that act as like a contrast and you can, it, just the fact that you can have this artificial artificiality um basically i mean the the whole concept of pop idols as far as um you know us in a western culture that don't really have that kind of thing i mean the closest thing is like those disney stars um that end up becoming uh like you know big names and then they have to kind of reinvent themselves like me right right um and i think that uh Offering this is like a place where you can have some psychological horror. I, I think it's really important. So I think that's really fascinating because in in the rest of our selections today, there's a lot of um, that kind of metallic sound. It's a lot of artificial sounding instruments um, in the sense that it's like electronic and has like a lot of MIDI. And then it, I don't know, it has kind of like, it's weird to say crunchy, but it like it, it sounds, it's also really hard. Mm, like, like it's like been harsh. Yeah. It's very harsh. Like it's been processed through an amp that's been blown out a little bit. Um, so it, it just doesn't feel right. And that's kind of like a hallmark of horror scoring is that you're trying to, put unease into the audience and make them feel like oppressed. And you, you're trying to help encourage the feelings of the things that are going on on screen. Um, but you're also trying to drive, I kind of drive them into the madness that, you know, Mima is, ex- is existing in, in the world of the film. Mm. Um, so here we're going to have another, uh, track from perfect blue as a reminder from Mashiro Ikumi. Uh, this is a track that's just, simply called Nightmare.
So, Caleb, nightmares? Uh, nightmare fuel. <laughs> Holy crap. I'm going to be hearing that one in my sleep tonight. That is uh, oppressive. Yes. And it doesn't stop. It just keeps building and building and building until it feels like it turns into a thinly pointed drill that drills down into your skull and yeah. your ear. Oh, man. Ooh, uh, I got some Ex Machina vibes off of the second half. of it. Once we got to the point where it was more melodic. Yes. I, I, I definitely was getting some of that. The electronic sound was very present. Yes. But also, again, like a, an electronic sound gone horribly wrong. Yes. <laughs> All of those things. I totally agree. It's really interesting. Um, also, because another thing that I mean, a lot of horror soundtracks do this, but one thing that um, Perfect Blue does extremely well is um, there's a point where it's, you know, because there's the concept of diegetic and non-diegetic music, but it like pushes beyond that where it's actually the the push between the soundtrack itself, which is like that includes dialogue that can, includes like music heard in the world of the film that incl- includes uh, sound effects. Um, and then that pushes into the score where it, there's a um, example where Mima, um, she slight spoilers. She's being stalked. Um, that's part of this hiccup here. Uh, she's being stalked and she receives a fax and the fax it's 97, right? <laughs> she, yes, so they, the, had, they, had, they said fax machines back in 1997. There is a great bit that if you've never seen this movie before where she talks about the internet and it is a delight, it's probably the only time you laugh it's in like this a, movie. It's <laughs> like, a, you know how really, really old, we used to joke about how really, really old people would talk about the compu- about computers. It's like that, except for this is like a, like a 20 some odd woman. Yes, it's, it's a, it's a treat. Anyway. What do you mean? HTTP. <laughs> Great. Um, anyway, so Mima receives a fax at her house and it starts to print. And then the sound of the printing, because I'm sure you people listening will remember those printers that it's like. Uh, good old 90s yeah. printers. Yeah, it doesn't just spit it out. You know, it takes a cool minute to, to print something and it takes that and it turns that into the actual score. So it's like, Oh, this oppressive feeling that we felt during this one moment. Oh, it's just going to keep going into the next scene. And so it's a great way of building and maintaining tension across scenes, across stuff that it's like, okay, if she was just, you know, the, the, so you have the, the printing of the facts and if, if it cuts to a sequence that has kind of a low energy to it, if it maintains it, that's a, a great way of heightening and calling back to that moment. And then we just keep thinking about it and ruminating on it. It, it just, it's a great way of building without just relying on jump scares or relying on, on stuff that, that is like, yeah, you can do that, you know, and punch it, punch it up with a music cue. You could have a jump scare, punch it up, whatever. But I mean, something that it actually leaves you with lasting terror, which is, I think what most good horror movies do, um, instead of just temporary cheap jumps, um, is well, no, it creates this entire atmosphere yeah. and this whole world you're living in, like this entire headspace you, you, you're, you're in when you're watching the movie. Cause you're so engrossed by this, the narrative that you're like living in this woman's nightmare. Yes. And, and like little nods like that, the transition between the printer sound to the, the music really, and, uh, further pulls you even closer to the yeah. world she's he, world and headspace she's in. Yeah. Another movie and I've actually recent history that, you know, we're not talking about today, but you should definitely check out is thoroughbreds. It did that beautifully throughout the movie, um, where there's, um, the stepdad is using a rowing machine and then in a very similar way, it's, it's again, it's a something that's like, it's mechanical sounding. It's also uh, rhythmic and it also kind of, I mean, it just has like this rhythm noise to it. And, 
and that transitions from being included in the soundtrack um, from the soundtrack to the score, then back to the soundtrack. And then after a while, if you watch the whole credits sequence, which you should um, at the end of the credits, all that's left, no music. It's just the rowing sound. And uh, boom goes the dynamite. Right, right. Yeah, it's just like, oh, do you want to feel all the things? You just just keep hanging on. We're not going to you know, spoil the fact that uh, what you just saw was uh, darkly hilarious and terrifying. Um, but but I think that's uh, that's exactly what Satoshi Kon is doing so well in this film um, with his uh, composer, Mashiro Ikumi. Um, it's just... I'm sad that there's not more literature that I could find, keep in mind, um, written or done about specifically the score of this, because I think it is noteworthy. And I think just like how Darren Aronofsky and, um, you know, to some extent, to some extent, David Lynch um, carry similar themes and at least imagery through their work from Satoshi Kon. I think that there there's some debt owed also to this score too sure no i think so well i think uh aronofsky's scores are wildly different than this but i do think that one thing he does that's similar is uh he has uh aronofsky opted for scores that are very atmospheric and are there to amp up the tension you as a viewer are already feeling from these already highly upsetting images you're seeing and scenarios you're in uh he works with quince mansell who's an incredible incredible uh film composer i love um to kind of create the same feeling yeah He's like a master at being able to ratchet tension, even in unexpected ways. So um, that's one thing that's great about this work. But I'm going to have to leave and we're going to be leaving Perfect Blue. But we're going to still talk about women losing their minds, except this time there's witchcraft. Witchcraft.
This is 1977, Dario Argento's Suspiria. Oh, gosh, there it is. Yeah, okay, should know okay. that. That's a great no, no, no. that's a great score. Yes. It's a great film. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And just the idea Harken back to the beginning of this episode, 1973, and here we have prog rock band Goblin composing the entire score for Suspiria. We've got that kind of similar tubular bells. We have that similar, like, weird asymmetrical prog rock dynamic going on. Um, And I think that's one thing, again, going back to a film that is more recognizable because of its horror score, I think that Suspiria checks that box so hard. Man, uh, this really, this score really elevates the movie. The movie is is fantastic, but the it, it, the thing about Suspiria is it's an experience. I, the way I always describe Suspiria is it's an experience. You feel the movie. Yes, it kind of washes over you in really terrifying, upsetting ways, but fascinating too. So, I think the score is a critical piece of that. Absolutely. Because there are some moments, I mean, it's still 1977. So, you know, we can't have the most beautiful graphics and the most realistic horror gore or anything, but without the score, without the oppressive nature of it. And again, what we talk about with Satoshi Kon's score for perfect blue, um, we're building this tension. We're ratcheting it up over time. So maybe moments that you wouldn't have reacted as emotionally to are now punctuated because of a score. That sounds like that for a lot of it is like, I mean, that's kind of just very chilling, man. Yeah, for real. Sorry. I had to do that. Talk about about witchcraft. man. I feel like there's some people brewing a pot of evil right behind me. Yeah. One thing that is really interesting specifically about Suspiria's score too. Um, so, Ennio Morricone, um, in his compositions for Leone, uh, Goblin score for Suspiria, um, it was made before the film was shot, which that's like an interesting hallmark, the hall back to another era is that it, it was like totally composed before the, you know, they even, <laughs> they scored, I mean, yeah. Alex, you're telling me they scored music before there was film. Yes. <laughs> How did they do that? They is just, it- they just did it. <laughs> Magic. Magic, yeah. What a time. What a time. And so another interesting element for specifically this film is that this sound, the score was also used as um, movies that was also reused in movies in Hong Kong. So just, again, going back to how strange and weird scoring was, especially in the 70s, it feels kind of like the Wild Wild West a little bit. Um, they just reused it for a handful of other films that were released only in Hong Kong, uh, martial arts films like dance of the drunk mantis and we're going to eat you. What? Sorry. I actually didn't read you. that before this moment. So I kind of want to watch that movie now. We're it's going a horror to comedy. You. We're going to eat you 1980. That's going on the list. <laughs> so, um, another thing that's really fascinating about this. Uh, so if you've not been living under a rock, you know that in our dear of our Lord, 2018, we have a remake of Suspiria right around the corner, right around the corner. I'm saying like is in less than two weeks, right around the corner. Absolutely. Um, so the band goblin, uh, that composed the score, um, well, they've had member changes, but they went on a tour of, they played Suspiria in a theater and they would play, live the the score oh my god yeah i would kill to see a suspiria live score yes 
Isn't that insane? That's incredible. It's amazing. Are they are they coming to Oklahoma City anytime soon? I don't know. <laughs> I wish. So the 2018 film remake of the same na- name, Call Me My Your Name director Luca Guadagnino. Um, you should guess who scores that movie because it is someone you definitely know. Not the cheese goblins from Mandy. <laughs> I w- wish. That's awesome. I mean, I just goblins. I thought that'd yeah. be surely. <laughs> It would be in common with the name. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Give me give me three guesses. Okay. And a tip. Give me a tip. Okay. A tip. They're also a a modern prog rock superstar. Okay. Trent Reznor. Okay, we're in the right family. I'm in the right family. You're in the. You're in the. You're you're. That's like a radiohead. Okay. Keep going. I'm out of, I'm out of guess. No, but, I got three. I got three guesses. No, no, I know, but you're that, that is but not Radiohead. You need to no, know, but you need to, who, who of Radiohead did oh, the score? I don't know their names. Oh, okay. I'm terrible, but That's a fine. member of Radiohead. So, okay. Yes. So correct. Member of Radiohead, Tom York, front Tom man, York. lead singer. Um, basically the man responsible for what we know as Radiohead. Oh my God. Composed Alex. for Suspiria. So it's like full circle, right? So you have prog rock band, 1970s composing the score for Argento's version of Suspiria. Now fast forward 2018, we have, um, them Radiohead front man, York doing the same thing for the modern version of Suspiria. I love that shit. I cannot wait. Um, I, I, I think only great things are in store. Even if this movie is not good, which I think it will be quite good or if it's divisive, if nothing else, but, uh, I believe the score is going to be fantastic. Yeah. The title track, uh, I think it's called Suspirium for, uh, the 2018, uh, Suspiria. It, it hit top 40 alternative when it was released. Like it is, this is a force. This, this score is, is already transcending. It's, it's, it's already system. haunting us. Uh, it's already haunting us. That's right. Um, so apparently Tom York, this is his first film score. He was approached for fight club in 99, but turned it down. Good call. I think, yep. Yeah, I think I honestly think that's but, fine. I feel like this is more of a more fitting project for what Radiohead does. Yeah. Cause I, I think chemical brothers, for for fight club i think that was it was fit that was also fitting very fitting yes yeah i, I think and the fight club's a great movie don't get me wrong i'm just saying as far as like pairing oh no talents. no no. yeah that's that's exactly where i was going with it too because i feel like chemical brothers it's more of a slice of the era that fits more of that and i think for what i know of tom york and radiohead this film suspiria i mean we've only seen the 77 version so far but I think that this is more in keeping with his brand aesthetic vibe right. tone yes. tone, his musical actual tone that he's established. It's weird. It's trippy. It's uh, you feel the music. Yes. yes. That is everything Radiohead lives. By. You almost taste the music tasting the music. Um, so he in the film score. This is really interesting. No homages to 77 Suspiria. Oh, so it's completely original, completely fresh. Ah. I appreciate this approach. Um, so it is very interesting because so we heard in that title track from 77 Suspiria, uh, where someone from Goblin is like, you know, besides the kind of noise, he, someone is singing lyrics. Um, there's plenty of, sung lyrics throughout this score, which I find very interesting because that's kind of one band composes the entire, well, one man of one band composes the entire score for a work. And then 
he's actually featured singing on a lot of it. It's not just Sufjan Stevens with Call Me By Your Name to, you know, for that callback where he just sings the title theme right. and composes the whole thing. No, he like sings on like, I think it's like a good chunk of the tracks. And he's a featured vocalist for a lot of yeah, yeah. his writing. Okay. And so he said that a lot of the lyrics of the stuff he was singing, he's not actually specifically singing about anything happening on screen. Like all the lyrics are, he says he's mostly singing about like world politics. Like, I mean, of course, metaphors and allegories oh, of, of world politics yes. and this kind of like Trumpian, or like kind of the, where we are in the world today with like oh, Trump boy. and world. It's going to be really sad. Oh, it's going to yeah. be real sad. Just Ooh, a boy. total gut punch, uh, which is again, very Suspiria. Absolutely. I, I think that fits that fits what this movie is about. It's about mood, uh, articulating mood and feel and in the and psychology of uh, of the audience even. Yeah. Um so Tom York said in a Billboard interview that there's uh, one track that he feels like def- for him defines how he feels about the movie and what it's like his basically his personal titular track. Um it's called Open Again. Um and this is a quote from his interview with Billboard. Um, open again comes in a sort of pause in the film where they have a dance sequence. It's completely simple. And I wrote it literally from the script. Um, and it just fell out. I tracked it to the sequence they had and it fitted exactly. And so I think it's the most pure and simple statement in the film. I feel lyrically. So we're going to hear that in its entirety. This is Tom York open again, 2018, uh, Suspiria.
yeah, so that's something else, right? Alex, I feel like I just was at a concert and then was abducted by an alien and sucked into the, the UFO yeah. like by a straw. It's great. Oh, it's so good. And, and I feel like, you know, we haven't seen Tesperia yet because God hates us. And we're not yet. We're not yet. It's not November 2nd or 3rd there. yet. When, Wait, it's really November 2nd? November 1st. Whatever that Friday is. No, but I know, but it's not fucking Halloween. This is a spooky it, movie. It, it is. It is, in fact, a crime if they wait until the Friday after Halloween to debut this God, film. Oh, I hate everyone. It's okay. But and so Tom York and what he does here, I think it's so profound because it it's one of those things where it feels like a a perfect match from what we know of what his musical style and influence is B it, it feels like how can you remake something? So it kind of gives me a lot of great hope for 2018 Suspiria because it's like, it, it is kind of a remake. It is a reimagining. It's taking the story and it's a taking the story and pushing it, but it, it feels, it still feels like the original work, but it doesn't. And it is pushing something and doing something further. Well, it's like taking the idea of the original, like, Hey, what did the original do really well? So we don't want to just, we don't want to remake the original sound. We want to accomplish the same goals that it did without feeling like we're slavish to that existing material. Yeah. And so Tom York, he uh, wrote a lot of sketches on piano. He, um, he cites Morricone a lot. As being ah, in, yes, in, good old Morricone. Yeah, and in, in what he and what he did. Um, so the there's like a lot of that kind of like white noise and like cacophonous rhythms, arrhythmic a- uh, stuff, and that's something that we kind of hear across all the scores we've discussed today. There's a lot of that. It's like noise that someone has like manipulated into becoming musical. It sounds like uh, otherworldly. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it takes a familiar sound, but then Absolutely. it warps into something that's uh, otherworldly and it's arrhythmic because it's not, na- it doesn't sound natural. And yeah. I think, you know, that's a, that taps into a very inherent human fear. We have, uh, the unnatural yeah. things we don't understand. Right. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, both this film, um, at least the 77 Suspiria and perfect blue have this thing in common of this, of the breaking of this young woman, um, who gets put through a lot of psychological duress. Um, and then there is something that occurs in her life and it changes her life forever. Um, and I think that all of these scores have been great at ratcheting tension at kind of maintaining tension and they're not just so reliant on the jump scare. Um, even, uh, you know, the idea that they're, you know, manipulating sounds to get the exact, exact influence on the audience that they want and that the director wants. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I know. I agree. Again, it's not about the jump scares. It's not about like the heightened, super heightened tension. It's about more about creating, what is going to make an audience feel uncomfortable yeah. as we, they matched with these crazy visuals if uh, you know have been created by Dario Argento. Yeah, and and that's the thing that's going to be that that horror and dread and unease that sticks with an audience and that makes them come back to a work more so than just something cheap, you know. Agreed, the best kind of horror. Exactly. 
Well, everyone, that's our show for this week. Uh, please rate, review the Cinematic Schematic on iTunes. Um, that helps more people um, tune into our show. Especially, you should tune into our show to make sure you tune in to our new interview series that's coming to audio devices near you. November, guys. November. Subscribe today. That way, you don't have to do the work tomorrow. Yes, exactly. You will always be notified if those win. When those interviews roll out, they will come to your device and they will play if you push play. Absolutely. And help, as Alex said, help other people discover Absolutely. us by giving us a rating and a review. That would be lovely. Absolutely. If you could give us one Halloween gift this year. Oh, that's that's the best that's the best Halloween gift you can give a gal. Yeah, is, come on. Don't, don't trick us with your fandom. Uh, Treat us with your reviews oh and let God. us know how we're doing. <laughs> Bless you, Caleb Masters. I am... Alex V. Brohannon on Instagram and on Twitter. I've spelled it earlier in the show and I'm too tired to spell it again. Where can people find you, Caleb Masters? Well, people can always find me tweeting on the internet uh, at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. I'm also uh, on uh, Instagram at C Masters 91, also on Letterboxd at C Masters 91. That's fantastic. So, closing out our show, we will be followed by the track Volk from 2018 Suspiria, as composed by Tom York. Uh, well, as always, we're Soundtrek, and we look forward to trekking with you next month. The haunting sounds of the cinematic schematic haven't ended just yet. Make sure to stay tuned to hear the latest updates in the making of the time travel body horror film Shifter with Jacob and Zachary Burns. You won't want to miss it. everyone and welcome to this special segment of the cinematic schematic i'm your host caleb masters we are joined once again by the producers slash director slash set photographer of the upcoming film shifter jacob and zachary burns jacob welcome hey zachary welcome hello hi guys hey man what's up it's good to see you guys not for real i genuinely not even podcast show I, it's good to see you guys <laughs> hey you know what you too, man. Oh, thanks. <laughs> right back at you. I, w- I went from seeing you guys pretty frequently, and then all of a sudden you started making a movie. Yeah. Suddenly we have way less time to like hang out and <laughs> yeah. do stuff. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. I, I feel like all of a sudden there's a, there's a big Burns twin-shaped hole in my heart, and I'm like, well, if, if it's not one of your birthdays or something, I'm like, I don't even see you anymore. <laughs> uh, or tower, Oh, sorry. Birthdays or tower theater screening. Oh, yeah, that's reporters. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for real though, it's it's a real pleasure to to sit down with you guys and get to and and for me, just as much for the listeners, listeners out there, for real, I'm catching up with them right now because <laughs> I haven't heard all the cool stories. And so, if you guys tuned into our August episode, we talked with Jacob and Zachary about the making of Shifter. That was part one of our series, and we're going to be talking with Jacob and Zachary on the podcast, usually on a monthly or or at least bi monthly basis. 
to talk about how do you make a sci-fi body horror time travel film called Shifter. Now, for those of our listeners who have not been keeping up with Shifter film, or maybe this is the first time they've heard about the Shifter film project, could you elaborate on a little a little bit more on exactly what is Shifter? For sure. So uh, Shifter will be my second feature film as a writer-director, and I think the third for Planet Thunder Productions, fancy, uh, which is me, Zachary, and our producer partner, uh, Vinny Hogan. Shifter is a time travel horror film about a young woman who starts to experience these um, very painful and gruesome side effects after she, uh, after an experiment with time travel, goes very wrong. Did you say time travel? I did. Like the greatest science fiction genre there is. That's the one. Yes, I love it. <laughs> so. Gents, I want to go ahead and pick up right where we left off. Sweet. So, last time we talked, you were at the very end of your Indiegogo. Well, and, and your goal was, what was it, 35? Goal was 30. 30,000. 30, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. How much money did you guys make? We ended up, so it was kind of a mad dash there at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of went from like being kind of bummed about how much money we weren't going to make uh and then there in the last few days we raised like a lot what was it like six thousand or something like that in the last like two days or something something like that um so we ended up getting just over twenty five thousand, um which wasn't wasn't the goal but still um you get pretty close to that 25 yeah huge amount yeah it's more than Uh, that's more than 80 percent of the goal i believe yeah 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 and Way more than we raised for nostalgia, yes. electric nostalgia, um, a full ten thousand more, which is crazy. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was uh, is th- that night especially because uh, it was we weren't <laughs> sure we were gonna. Get, we started out the morning at like twenty two or something like that, something like that, yeah. And uh, we were like, okay, well, let's just try to get as much as we can. Yeah. And like the day was kind of slow, just kind of consistently came in, and then there in the last like. Starting around like hours, eight or yeah. so, seven or eight or something like that. All of a sudden, that's when everybody who procrastinated suddenly was like, "Oh, this is ending right now." What do you guys yeah. say like, "Right yeah. now, if we don't meet our goal, we don't get to make a movie," which is not what you guys actually said. But yeah, but it, <laughs> right. yeah, so it's a good yeah, way to light some of, light some like some light a fire. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, this is your last chance to give and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so yeah, all of a sudden, people that that's how it always happens. There's always like a big lull in the middle, yeah. and then all of a sudden, everybody realizes. Oh yeah, I was planning to do this. So, so they, is that from your? I mean, obviously from your personal experience. But would you say from other filmmakers you've talked to, is that a pretty common experience when like last? I mean, not that you should count on last second donations, but yeah. where it's all of a sudden those last very important hours, people start to show up. Totally, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's true of pretty much probably any fundraising campaign, whether it's a movie or anything. Um, there's just always people who, from day one or before day one, have planned to give. Uh, but just like everybody, and I do it too, like where yeah. I'm like, I, oh, I'll see a project or a friend's project and I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to give to that. And then I don't in that one moment. And then all of a sudden on the last couple of days, I'm like, oh, th- I better do this or I'm not going to be able to. When you see all the yeah. fire emojis saying, donate to our movie, please. <laughs> exactly. like, oh, yeah. yeah, I should do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, congratulations. Thank you. The $25,000 is very impressive. Yeah. That's a lot of money. You can, you can make a movie for that. You can. And we're going to. Yes. <laughs> well, that's exciting to hear the, the morale boost there because my yeah. next question is, okay, you, and we talked about this a little bit on last episode in our last talk where you said 
well, we need this much money to make the movie we, we want to make, but if we make less, we're still making a movie. Mm-hmm. So what would you? how would you say that the $25,000 you raised versus the $30,000 goal changes your plan? Um, yeah, it kind of, we kind of took a few days after we got that 25,000 and just Mm kind of have to, uh, reassess a little bit and just acknowledge that, okay, we're going to have to figure some things out and get creative with some stuff. Uh, and so what we've, uh, decided to do is we decided to split our shoot because we really feel like we need four weeks to make this movie to shoot it. And so what we decided to do was split that into two, two week phases. Okay. So we're shooting the first phase uh, for two weeks in starting in November, just in like, like two and a half weeks or something like that. It's yeah. coming up very soon. Right around Ooh. the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we'll shoot the second phase later on. But basically that gives us a little bit of a chance to maybe find some other money somewhere or for us to get creative and find ways that we can mm-hmm. do things for cheaper or um, or anything. You know, Now that we'll shoot this first two weeks, we'll shoot over half of the movie in this first yep. two weeks. So, um, and really the meat of the movie. Uh, and so really from there we can start editing and we can look at what we've put together and that might change what we shoot in the second phase. We actually could help make the movie better, uh, by giving us more time to be like, okay, here's what we got. Here's what we need Mm -hmm. to fill in these gaps. Maybe what's written is, doesn't quite actually gel with that. Or maybe Mm -hmm. there's more we need to do there or like, you know, we can just, we, we have a better chance of figuring that out. And hopefully figuring out a way to do it cheap or finding, oh, you know, finding the money somewhere. Okay, so it sounds like uh, you guys have a really cool, very creative, uh, but also exciting plan too. I, I think that's that's uh, an interesting approach. It reminds me a little bit, uh, a little bit like uh, maybe. <laughs> Uh, the uh, Avengers uh, Infinity War Part 1 and 2. <laughs> um, you know, because... Well, I say yeah. that because yeah, I know yeah. that uh, the way studio filmmaking is, is a lot of times they are editing versions yeah. of the movie as they make totally. the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So For it sounds sure. like this is... You might actually get to see... Obviously, you're not making a $500 million movie or whatever, but you're able to see some of the same benefits they have because yeah. they're... Uh, I mean, that was specifically that film because it was, such a, it was a two-part film... That was over like a hundred days or whatever. Yeah. But there were definitely parts they had certain cast members available for for certain days, and they were able to say, "Hey, look at it. Here's what we need. Here's what we don't need." Yeah. And you're almost in a roundabout way able to get a pickup shot shooting. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to be able to identify specifically. Totally. Mm-hmm. Here's a shot, a specific shot we need. So that might you know allu- you know alleviate the need for any sort of like pickup at an extra cost to you guys yeah, later. Exactly. Every movie most likely could benefit from some sort of like pickup shoot or reshoots or something like that. Um, There's just things that on the day, for whatever reason you miss, there's a million reasons Mm -hmm. why you could miss something. Or the way you shot it, you find out it doesn't work for some reason. Yeah. So it needs to be reshot for, you know. Yeah. Literally any reason. Yeah, exactly. Does that ever happen to you guys where you, you do something and at the time when you're shooting it, it feels right, but then you actually watch it in the editing band and you're like, huh. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a different version of the scene that fits a little more with the rest of the film? Does that happen often? All the time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a lot of times where yeah, in that moment, like that scene totally works in that moment. It, you know, looks great. You shoot it well and everything. Mm-hmm. Lighting's good. Acting's good. But the way it, once you start editing everything together, yeah. it might actually not really fit in. With, you know, like even nostalgia, we ran into that a few times mm-hmm. where um, like there's this whole 
sequence that we just completely cut out of the movie uh, because it just felt like it like was gen- it was shot fine like it wasn't yeah. bad like but it just when the scene played in the edit it just felt like it was a scene from a different movie mm. this whole sequence and it was like kind of this weird like ghostly shadows like we were gonna play yeah. up shadows and stuff like that a lot more with like the nightmares and stuff uh, and this was supposed to be like one of the really big moments of that and um, I we cut it out after the first cut oh, i yeah. think it, wow. it left almost it, immediately because yeah. we're like it just feels like a different movie yeah uh and so what we did we did some pickup shoots where we got uh lauren there and we just shot a few close-ups that could kind of take what we had and kind of give us some connective tissue between the next scene mm-hmm. uh and really it was stupidly simple like we shot oh, yeah. her uh walking in a door uh she like looked around yeah uh, around the room and she's like kind of freaking out but then she just calms herself down and yeah that's it and then yeah and we got her like <laughs> grabbing a photo or something like that oh like, yeah just yeah. a few like kind of close-ups that and and watching it you probably don't notice that yeah. for us it was a it was a kind of a uh what would you call it um a mishmash of things oh, shot yeah. over several months yeah uh, in different locations in different locations yeah we didn't even use the door that was in that we actually yeah. shot in the movie. She's um, in a completely different house. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> if, if you're paying attention really yeah. closely to yeah. your surroundings. <laughs> yeah. Um, the magic of film. Yeah, exactly. Never ceases like, to amaze. Exactly. For sure. we, and we shot some of the laboratory pickup shots in Zachary's... In my apartment. Bedroom apartment. Yeah. Bedroom. <laughs> yeah. With Shifter, which great, is now we've got time to... Yeah, we can shoot this first two weeks um we'll be at a farm the whole time which is Mm -hmm. nice and then yeah we can start editing uh and and look at where the holes are and and uh and schedule that into the next two weeks that's very cool i mean so it really gives you an advantage to i I mean it sounds like you guys it sets you up to have Mm -hmm. more opportunities to make the film better and that's only a good Mm -hmm. thing yeah Um, so that's really really exciting yeah now you touch on you're in a barn which brings me to there's a couple different things i want to talk to you about today and one of them being location scouting. Yeah. So since we last talked, you guys are saying, okay, the next phase, we're going to be looking at locations. So obviously you've done that in the last two months since mm-hmm. we talked. So talk to me a little bit about the process, how you guys handle location scouting. How does that work? Um, wh- how do you find these places? Uh, how do you book these places? Uh, un- enlighten mm-hmm. me. Um, well, it's, uh, at least for us on this one, um, uh, we kind of have uh uh, a friend who's done, um, he's been a location manager on a lot of movies. And basically that job is is to specifically, they'll go through the script, see all the locations that are needed, and then it's up to them to kind of start bringing the options to uh, the producers and the director. Um, and so we've got a buddy, Casey Crowdis, who has done that on a bunch of movies around here. And he's, he has tons of great relationships with almost everybody in the state, it seems like. <laughs> um, uh, but he's just one of those guys who can really just uh, just just charm you with his uh, personality. And even though he's kind of a little off, you know, <laughs> not in, in, a, in a great loving way, he's he's a funny guy, but but uh, he's, you know, he's, he, that's everybody his, likes that's, him. You that's know? in his credits. He's uh, the off sc- <laughs> uh, location scouter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, lovingly off locations. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so he, uh, we basically just uh, went to him and was like, "Hey, man, uh, we need we need a farm. 
with the with the old house in, o- in Oklahoma, a yeah. farm. Yeah, can you believe it? Wow, um, surprisingly yeah. harder to find than you think. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so we just went to him and we're like, "Hey, man, we need a we need a farmhouse. Uh, it'd be great if there's a barn on the land as well, uh, and we need to shoot there for two solid weeks, inside and outside, inside and outside. And house, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was like." Great, yeah, I know these guys will have a house. And it's, uh, <laughs> there's a barn on the property, and uh, they're really easy going. So yeah, it'll probably work out, and that's exactly what has happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, which yeah is in part a lot because of the relationship that Crowdus has built with uh, the uh, the location owners. Um, that you know we can we can do anything basically. So if you're a filmmaker who wants to have good location options, what you're saying is find a Casey Crowdus and be good BFFs with him. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Exactly. Um, I think Casey Crowdus would prefer if you don't go to him because <laughs> he's he's taking a little break from movies for, <laughs> for the time being. Um, but you don't if you don't find Casey Crowdus specifically, yeah, yeah. you need a Casey Yeah, Crowdus. find your own Casey Crowdus. Exactly. That's, that's, there what, what, you need. that's what we're saying is find your yeah. own Casey Crowdus. He's all taken, guys. Yeah, yeah. He's, this one's ours. You stay away. <laughs> Okay, well, that's that's cool. So you guys handed him a... You basically make a list of all the locations you need, and you hand mm-hmm. it off. You, you have someone who goes and identifies those locations. You just hand it off to them. Basically, and then they just kind of... Um, the process is, is they just kind of start sending you photos okay. of these locations. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the, uh, we can look at them and decide you know, whether it looks like something we could use or yeah. not um yeah and then from there that's when you start kind of narrow it down because yeah narrow it down to what you kind of want or at least who you who you want to reach out to um so it's we kind of narrow it down to what locations we think might work and then uh that's when the location manager will start actually reaching out to the location owners and starting conversations um seeing if uh uh seeing if um us producers and director can visit the location to see what it looks like in person. Um, and then from there it kind of, that's yeah. where you really make the decision on whether we think it would work for our movie Yeah, and, you know, kind of start talking to the location owners to see if they would be open to having a movie shot there. Yeah. Cause it's really a balance between <laughs> you got to find the place that looks right. Mm-hmm but it also needs to function like, so you need to make sure there's power. You need to make sure there's bathrooms. You need to make Mm -hmm. sure, you know, there's just all these things, you know, place for makeup, you know, there's all these like things you have to take into account. Like something can look great, but if there's no bathrooms, then that's then, a whole other issue you have to figure out. So yeah. well, you, you, just, you, you don't there. just yeah. tell yeah. your actors and your crew, like, hey, there's a woods nearby. <laughs> right? <laughs> they, yeah. they don't appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, 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 they really don't. <laughs> they really don't like that. Um, you say it's for the art. <laughs> right? It's uh, for the movie, man. No, no, but you need... Okay, so it, it needs to be... Uh, uh, so there's a lot of boxes to check oh, or yeah. to think about. Totally. Like, hey, mm-hmm. this seems to be a place that's actually available mm-hmm. um, by the owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be a place that you can that, that fits what you're looking for creatively mm-hmm. and also it needs to function as a proper location as in there's like you said power bathroom all of the necessities like a yeah. group of people working in this area we need to we need to have um because it's actually still a workspace mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. very interesting yeah and then where are people gonna park yeah, yeah. uh which you know can depending on location sometimes is actually far away from the location yeah, totally um, not luckily not this time for yeah. us yeah 
A lot of logistics, a lot of logistical yeah. stuff that I think maybe people who don't make movies or have not gone to the scale of movie don't really think about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like when we went and scouted this farm that we're going to use, mm-hmm. um, we brought our gaffer and our um, uh, production designer, mm-hmm. art department guy, with us uh, to the location. So then they can be looking for like, okay, the gaffer is looking at like, okay, where do, where's the power where's the electricity do we need to bring more power somehow yeah. like generators or whatever and then art department is looking like okay here's what's in the house here's what's missing here's what we think we're going to need to move like all it. Yeah. so they're they're thinking about their own things and they can tell us what they see and what they need um and so yeah that's another thing i'd highly recommend is to doing tech <laughs> yeah. scouts and location scouts and well before we shoot we'll do another tech scout just mm-hmm. to make sure we didn't miss anything Okay. All right. So revisiting the same location first by yourselves, next with the like the really the key stakeholders with your production crew and that group, saying who mm-hmm. is gonna mm-hmm. who is going to need have the most needs or need to have the eyes on this location before we make it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice out there. So if yeah. you're listening, guys, take note. <laughs> Don't just make decisions and tell everyone to make it work. You like make sure that they can <laughs> yeah. work there. That's great. Yeah. Um. So another thing we talked about in our last uh, conversation about shifter was that you guys were going through the casting process. And clearly, we are just short, a couple of short weeks away from <laughs> casting. Anyone who is following you guys on social media, uh, which you can find at uh, shifterfilm.com is, uh, of course, the website. And uh, I, th- I think it's at, it's after, at Shifter on Twitter, right? Uh, at Shifter Movie. At Shifter Movie. On Twitter and Instagram. Instagram. Woo. So guys, go and follow those. But if you're not following those, you don't know that they have casted the film uh, with a... Uh, a small but very exciting cast of awesome actors. So could you, could you guys tell me a little bit about who are some of the more notable casting decisions and why did you decide to roll with them? So our lead for the character, Teresa, is an actor uh, from Dallas named Nicole Fancher, and she is so great. She's incredible. Um, she's really... Um, we, we've worked with her in the past long time ago. She was in a short film I did called Broken Boy, um, which is what I did right before Election Nostalgia. Uh, and uh, and then she moved to L.A. and stuff like that, and so we haven't seen her in a while. Um, but, yeah, when she auditioned, I was excited because I, I knew how great she was. And um, she just, yeah, just she through the audition and the callbacks and everything, she just blew us away. And it was just, it was, there, was, there was a moment in her callback where like for a second I like forgot that it was Nicole and was like, Oh my God, there's, there's Teresa on the screen right now. So um, yeah, it was just very exciting. It was just, you could really tell I'm just talking with her about the character since then and stuff like that. You just really tell that she really uh, connected with this character on a deeper level. Like she really relates to the character a lot. And so that was um, the, that's who you want in the role someone who really, really gets it. Um, and so she's, yeah, she's going to be great and it's a really tough role, but, um, she's, she's going to be awesome. This is of course, Teresa, who is the feature character in the film. If you're not familiar Mm -hmm. with shifter, she is going to be the one who I assume travels through time and experiences body horror of some sorts. (laughs) Very not fun things happens to Teresa. Uh, Very cool. So, so Nicole, you, you watch audition. You said, this is the one. Yeah. And that was a, and that was a pretty quick decision for you. Was that one that you? Because I'm sure I know there's probably some of these that that it's like a very you go back and forth on. You have mm-hmm. to weigh. You, you have to like make notes and say okay, that, yeah. Like spot. But, the, but her was she one that you knew pretty quickly? Like this is the lead. We after the auditions, we narrowed it down to like we had like six or seven 
Teresa possibilities. Yeah. Um, and they were all really, really good. They all had oh, their sure. own interesting take on the character. So going into it, we, we thought it was going to be super difficult. Um, and, um, and it still was after the callbacks, but like she just, um, she just really stood out from everybody. Like I said, like the, I, we had lots of great options. Um, but yeah, it just, it was just very obvious that she just connected mm-hmm. much more deeply than, than the others did. Um, uh, so yeah, that's kind of what, what stood out. So after the callback, it was, it was more obvious. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So we have Nicole in the lead. Who are some of the other actors you guys have cast? Um, another exciting one is, um, Josh Bonzi. Josh Bonzi. Um, oh, whoa, whoa. Josh Bonzi as in electric nostalgia. Josh Bonzi. the one. Oh. <laughs> so I'm I, not a plant thunder fanboy. I just know the <laughs> actors in your previous movies. Um, Josh is one cool dude. He's he, so um, great. He, uh, anytime we play nostalgia, everybody almost always was like, man, that guy was a really good actor. And we're like, yeah, right. And I say just genuinely, yeah. he's really good in that movie. Yeah. He's just so, he's so natural. Like, he and he, he has this ability to, um, he can just bring so much personality to a character, even though like, even in nostalgia, like that character, I feel like on the page didn't have near amount the charisma and personality that he brought to it just For sure. with his presence and just like he's just able to instill so much depth and complexity to the character. And so yeah, it was the same thing uh with Shifter. Like he he was somebody I've I have i have definitely wanted to work with again after nostalgia. Plus he's just a cool guy to be around. Um but um yeah he was just able to take this this character and shifter uh, and just with through the audition and the callback, it, it was um, again. It's 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 interesting how it's almost like the characters choose who's going to play them. Sometimes, like mm, that might yeah. sound pretentious, but like that's, that's oh, it ho- does. But it it feels that way sometimes because it just like like I said after the auditions, a lot of times like it was the same thing. We had a few options for that character, and we're like, oh man, it's gonna be tough. But then after the callback, it was obvious. Like there yeah. really wasn't a huge debate. Like. And again, it's not because the act- the other actors were bad. There was just something that's really they connected with that character in a different way. Very cool, very so cool. cool. So, so you're kind of mixing some some actors you've previously worked with with uh, a largely new cast of yeah, actors most you haven't of them worked were new. with. Yeah, most mm-hmm. were new. We got lots of local actors, and then uh, now I heard yeah. a rumor, and by that I mean I totally went to one of your fundraisers where he showed up <laughs> uh, that uh, the actor. Who played the most recent iteration of Pinhead? Yep. As in, it, it's from uh, which? What, what is it? Uh, Hellraiser Judgment, Judgment. right? Yep. Yes. So this is the, the tenth Hellraiser movie. <laughs> tenth, yes. tenth. That's a notable number for a horror film yeah, franchise. Yeah, it is. Uh, so the Pinhead from the tenth Hellraiser movie, yes. is going to be in your film. So tell me about this yes. guy. Uh, Paul T. Taylor is. Um, such a cool dude. Um, so he's a lot of fun. He has so much fun. He um, is funny. Zachary worked on Hellraiser Judgment as the set photographer, right? I sure did. Um, that was fun. <laughs> I feel like that would be a fun movie to do sets for. That okay. was a lot of fun. I don't yeah. want to go off on too much of a tangent, but just for a second, can we pause and talk about <laughs> yes, and, and, and of course include your your interactions with Paul here? 
But like, what is it like working on like a super ultra gory horror movie as a set <laughs> photographer? Because I feel like you're probably taking pictures of all sorts of weird stuff. Lots of weird stuff. <laughs> uh, but that's what was so fun about it because I like I never knew what weird stuff I was going to see that day, um, and so I got got to take pictures of all so kinds great. of stuff, yeah. like lots of blood everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was uh, the movie was directed by. Uh, Gary Tunacliffe, who comes from special effects makeup. Mm. Um, and so the special effects makeup in Hellraiser Judgment was incredible. Because yeah. um, he he definitely supervised a lot of it himself, but he has like a great team working with him. Um, he he actually played a character himself called the Auditor. The Auditor. That um, sounds like such a Hellraiser name. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so he, Is he gonna come the auditor? The yeah, the auditor. He's gonna come audit my checkbook. He might, yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> or more, or yeah, or more, or He's a little audit more. Something, yeah. <laughs> audit my soul. Um, but That's yeah, cool. it was it was a lot of fun on the days when he was in character because he has this full mask on, basically of of makeup where his face looks like it's been all slashed up and he's wearing these these funky glasses. I know. Okay. Uh, Yes, I know who you speak of now. Yeah. yeah, And and so it was fun watching him be in that makeup, but just being himself because he's kind of a goofy guy Um, and directing a movie with this full head of makeup. It was it was really interesting. Yeah. But uh, so you um, meet Paul mm -hmm. Taylor on this on this film. Yeah. Do you guys hit it off? Do you guys get close? Like, how does that work? Uh, I mean, you know, it was mostly there were some jokes here and there, but nothing too extensive. So the first time I actually saw him was he was in the full pinhead garb on set. Uh, he was wearing the, the robes and everything with the, the pins in his head. <laughs> um, and it was like, like before, cause this, that was pretty late in the shoot. Uh, when he, when we finally got around to doing the pinhead stuff, but, um, up until that point it was like, okay, yeah, this, this is a Hellraiser movie I think we're working on. I mean, I knew, but it was like when it really sinks in. But when Pinhead shows up on the set. Yeah, when Pinhead shows up, you're like, oh, like, damn, like this, we are (laughs) making a Hellraiser movie. This is an iconic, like Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees level character we're talking about. Exactly. Um, So yeah, like it it really kind of changed the vibe and just, I don't know, just for me, it got me really excited about just being on set. Yeah. uh, seeing Pinhead do Pinhead things yeah. and he ripped people those shreds and it's great. Um, but then, yeah, when like, you know, cause he's doing like, he has, he does kind of this Pinhead voice, nothing too dramatic, but you know, it, it's definitely different from how he normally talks. Um, so when I actually uh, just talk with him a little bit on set and, and just him interacting with, with the director and all that stuff, um, it was just kind of funny Cause he's like he's a funny, super chill, also kind of goofy guy. Like so, it's <laughs> it's interesting um, uh, seeing him in like this full pinhead garb, be like this you know kind of joking. So he guy. looks like I'm about to eat your soul, but also I'm really funny. And yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, he's super chill and laid back. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. And I one one day on set, I I hung out after we were all wrapped, and they were. Um, taking the makeup off of him uh uh and which was just interesting to see because it's a full like it doesn't look like it's a mask thing that he's wearing but it is it's a full like his head is completely covered in just this pinhead mask basically that they just kind of fold and roll off of his face um and so then that was the first time i saw what he actually looked like and i was like oh 
cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it like it looks like him, but it yeah. doesn't. It's yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. You can but, see it, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then and then he was just wearing like this red hoodie, and it was he was just being goofy. That's super cool. So so obviously you get to talk to him a little, uh, a little bit. Now, did you guys reach out to him specifically for a role in the film, or was this one of those? Because I know he's based in in Dallas, I believe, mm-hmm. right? So or just like a happy coincidence that he saw you guys were casting a movie. Uh, yeah, it was actually more of the happy coincidence thing. Um, cause we, we friended each other on Facebook after Hellraiser, um, which was fun. I'm friends with Pinhead on Facebook. <laughs> um, very few people can say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not a lot of people can say that. Uh, um, and so when we started, uh, we put out the, the casting call for Shifter, um, you know, we blasted it all over social media and everything. So he, I believe he just saw something I posted mm-hmm. and then he he reached out to us about wanting to audition. We we're like, oh, yes, please. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any, any role. Any role. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you wanna, can you can be Teresa. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Teresa. Yeah. You, you want to try that one out? Yeah. <laughs> but we did like we actually like had a conversation after you did that. We we're like, OK, we know that he has some notoriety, but like mm-hmm. we can we can only cast him if he's right for the role. Right, like, of let's, we're not going to do it just yeah. to do it. And um Luckily, he, again, was very obviously right for the role. Like, he really oh, yeah. gave a really great audition. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we were just very excited that just kind of the worlds kind of collided or stars aligned in the right way uh, mm-hmm. for that. And then he, he's now read the script and stuff like that, and he's super excited, uh, really, I, really gung-ho about it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I saw him at the fundraiser. It was uh, one of your one of your yeah. last fundraiser parties. I think it was like the, the night, the, or well, it's the weekend before the Indiegogo yeah, actually wrapped. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, he was there, which was super cool. Yeah. yeah, he seemed like an incredibly personable guy. Totally. High energy, yeah. really believed in the project, man. He was really like, hey, let's make this thing happen. Let's make a film here in Oklahoma. I think it's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's super cool that you guys are able to cast someone else. So th- were there any other, other uh, were there any other notable uh, roles that you guys cast for? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just go down a lot of people that we haven't worked with. Jamie Brewster, mm-hmm. uh, um, she's gonna be great. There's a role called Martha, um, she's gonna be a lot of fun, yeah, she'll in be the movie. Fun. Um, wait, wait, is this the same Martha that unites Batman and Superman once and for all? <laughs> we also cast uh, Ben Hall, she's <laughs> not even gonna, gonna... <laughs> uh, but uh, Ben Hall is really great, he's kind of a local. Mm-hmm. legend almost around here a lot of yeah. he's, he appears he's been appearing in a lot of films around here so it's exciting that we've been able to pull him into this um who else is in it some austin uh mm-hmm. people katie atkinson um she's kind of new i worked with her on a short film uh, i was the cinematographer on a short film in austin a year year and a half ago or something like that should go yeah um uh and uh she had a role in it and so um yeah it was really cool when she auditioned because we were excited to kind of expand into mm-hmm. Austin and, and Dallas with um, both Nicole and uh, Paul are from Dallas. So you guys are recruiting out-of-state actors to come to Oklahoma yeah. to make a film here in Oklahoma. That's super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're good actors. So we're, we're lucky. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to start winding down the conversation here. But of course, uh, I have to ask you, where are we at now? You were just a couple weeks out before your start day for production, yeah, for shooting. So tell me a little bit about where you're at in the pre-production process. I'm sure there's tons of little things, and maybe this might be a good time to talk about some of the crew members you guys have recruited as well. Totally. Um, so yeah, that was the thing. After we 
uh, got through the Indiegogo and, and kind of saw how much money we had and stuff like that. Um, next step was just kind of break down the script. So we go everything and see like, okay, here's what wardrobe we need in all these scenes. Here's what uh, makeup, hair makeup stuff we need in all these scenes, blah, blah, blah. And just from down from there, we just break it up into each department. Uh, and then from there we get, we kind of look at, okay, who, who do we want to fill the roles in each of these departments? Um, and so, um, we've brought on, we've, it's, it's kind of a good mix. We've got people we've mm-hmm. worked with before and a bunch of new people, um, that we've know of through other projects or stuff like that. Um, but we're just fans of them. So for me, I'm also going to be the cinematographer on the movie cause I'm crazy and hate myself or something. I don't know. Yep. Um, I mean, it's kind of your, your expertise. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. That's right. A lot, of, a, lot of, up in and, yeah. a lot of directors like to direct themselves in the movie. Yeah, but yeah, she yeah. want to be the cinematographer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like cinematography is actually the fun the camera, part. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah. So then, what's important for me is I need a first AC um, or first assistant camera. Uh, so I got uh, this guy named Phil Bird, who I've worked with a few times. This will be first. Well, I guess technically a second time now because I worked with him a couple weeks ago as my AC. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's a great guy. He, he'll be in charge of. The camera keeping the camera safe and he can i can tell him where it needs to be and how tall it needs to be and what filters and stuff like that and he'll take care of that while i go work with the actors and stuff so you need someone very trustworthy and pulling focus that'll be his number one, number <laughs> yeah. one job so i don't have to worry about it um <laughs> and then uh our gaffer who's in charge of lighting and um uh he'll also be in charge of kind of our grip department which will be him uh <laughs> so doing like three different job roles yeah, okay. exactly. yeah, Everybody, yeah. everybody's kind of kind of taking on a load here multitasking uh, yeah. come on exactly yeah sure. uh but micah hart we've worked with him he's been my gaffer on the last few things micah is incredible he's just a cool cool dude and just just so intuitive and we just it, that's just so important for same with phil it's just like they're both very intuitive they can think a few steps ahead and they just like learn you know, they figure out what I need and what I want in my style and stuff like that. And then they can anticipate that before we get to it uh, and kind of be thinking ahead and figuring things out, which is great. Who else? We got Rhiannon Casillo is our uh, makeup. hair makeup person. She's great. She also worked on Mono and mm-hmm. she's, we've worked with her on other projects for other directors and stuff. Um, and then uh, someone new is Tatiana Hayton, who's going to be our special effects makeup person. Uh, and she, yeah, she gets to make all the cool gross stuff. And so she actually just today sent me a bunch of photos. I showed them to Zachary and they look awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be really cool. Am I going to vomit? Am I? Maybe. I, maybe. <laughs> I just got that. They looked at me like, yes. Okay. All right. I might vomit. Okay. All right. All right. Get a little queasy. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, who else is on our crew? Oh, uh, Matt couch is Matt our couch, art yeah. department. Um, so he'll be in charge of, props and set decoration and mm-hmm. kind of getting all the sets ready to go and collecting all that stuff. So he's got a really big job. Um, yeah. But he's, we've worked with him on other projects. This will be the first time he works for us on a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and just another great, just go get her dude who just, you yeah, know, we, we give him a task. You can trust him to get it done. Um, and that's, Brian Gilliland. Oh yeah, Brian Gilliland is oh. our sound guy. Sound guy. Yeah. Wait, 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 the Okie Show Show. Brian Gilliland. Yes, exactly. that's, oh, the that's the one. One from the Okie Show Show, huh? Yeah, so like local he'll, celebrity. He'll bring the laughs and the <laughs> the quality sound. <laughs> exactly. Uh, recordings. I hear uh, he's quite good at that. Yes, he is. He is very good. Uh, Don't tell him I said that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then 
Also, by the way, Zachary will be first AD, uh, first assistant director. I don't think we've mentioned that. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't yeah. correctly assign yeah. the roles from the director, the uh, oh, no, the, the, the uh, photography producer, and first assistant director. So that's, <laughs> yes. that's very important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots and of hats. He'll be assisted by um, Anne Lodick. Mm hmm. Um, who uh, she'll be the UPM, I think, yep. is what we're going to call that, that position. Yes. <laughs> that will cover many departments, probably. Oh, yeah. Lots um, of hats for everybody. Yeah. Um, who else is there? And then I, it's worth mentioning we're also partnering with Metro Tech Schools uh, with Harry Wallahan. Yeah, what's cool about that is we're mm-hmm. going to get some gear from their school, lots of stuff. Uh, and uh, the, the trade-off is that he brings some of his students uh, which can range from, it's a tech school, so some are high school, some are older, some are mm-hmm. um, adults. And so um, basically that it's just a chance for them to kind of hang out on a film set and learn how to make movies and stuff like that. So it's great for them. And then mm-hmm. we get some uh, that, you know, they can intern and AC and kind of help out. Get some extra hands on set. Exactly, yeah, just help us out on set. So um, kind of a cool trade-off for everybody. So I think it's going to be a really fun set. I think it's yeah. going to be a really cool time. Well, it sounds like you guys are ready to go. Yeah, let's do it. We like to pretend. <laughs> you guys are excited, though. Are you? Oh yeah. Are you at all nervous? Oh, yeah. Um, anxious might be the right yeah. word. Like I'm, I'm very. I'm, I, I can't wait to get on set, but I'm also want to make sure we've got everything ready mm. before we get on set. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I really, I can't wait. We got a really cool location. Got a really cool crew. Um, I had the got a cool concept for a movie that we're just all really excited about um, and gotten good feedback on the script and stuff. So, um, yeah, if, if we don't screw it up, it should be a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fingers I, crossed. I think you guys are going to have a hard time screwing it up. You, get, you guys are very capable gentlemen with a lot of very capable support. So uh, I'm very excited to see what you guys do next. Um, so that's going to conclude our uh, second diary in the making of Shifter film here on the Cinematic Schematic. Uh, gentlemen, uh, before we leave off, I do want to give uh, listeners a chance to know where can they follow two things. Where can they follow, first and foremost, Shifter film on all the update, the official, air quote, updates on Shifter. Uh, but also, where can other folks find you guys uh, online as well? You can follow everything Shifter-related uh, on Facebook um, and then also uh, our website, um, shifterfilm.com. Uh, and on Twitter and Instagram at Shifter Movie, um, and me personally, um, if you're feeling crazy, uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Left Eye Burns. Jacob, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Boom Digadown. Uh, and I'd also like to mention if you go to shifterfilm.com, there is a button that says Donate. Feel free to click on that button. <laughs> yes, see see where it takes you. See where it takes you. Okay, no, no, that's glad you mentioned it because you did say. I, I want to remind the listeners. Yeah. You guys did say at the top of the show. Of course, you guys didn't quite meet your original Indiegogo goals, but there is still ways to contribute to the film. So if you're at all moved or inspired by the interview we had here today, or you really just want to invest in uh, independent sci- science fiction films, independent film, or Oklahoma films, I highly recommend you head on over to shifterfilm.com and consider donating. Uh, today, I think it'll be very worth your while to help make this project uh, succeed. Now, um, uh, gentlemen, I am very much looking forward to hearing how this film develops, and we'll be back again with a future diary. It'll be the third 
diary. And by, mm-hmm. I imagine by that point, we, you guys will actually have shot part of the film. So I'm very excited to talk to you again soon. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for tuning into the Cinematic Schematic this month. It's been a great time talking all of the Halloween and horror spooks and thrills. We'll catch you all again next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to give us a rating and a review to help us get discovered by even more listeners. Also, if you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends about The Cinematic Schematic and share it on your social media. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan and the program was hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. This month's film review was hosted by Caleb Masters, LaRon Chapman, and Christopher Schultz. Soundtrack was hosted by Alexandra Bohannon with selections from The Exorcist, Perfect Blue, and Suspiria 1977 and Suspiria 2018. We'll see you all again next month when things get pulpy in our month of Noir-vember. Noir-vember.